We're getting sketchy information that the mission has suffered massive failure. And what we're trying to do right now is to confirm that and find out exactly what that means. Pete, we're getting leaks from several NASA officials, some rushing home to be with their families, that the drilling was unsuccessful. This could very well be our final hour. We're going to go off the air now. Good luck and God bless. We've got incoming. I got tracks. Norad's tracking four small incoming over Europe. I think one's about to hit near Paris. Hey, I'm Michael Bay, and I am a strong believer in protecting the cinema experience. I demand things to be awesome. Awesome as you can. Back and forth and back and forth. Jake is so intense. I started laughing. That's when I said, this is so stupid, but he looked great. God, I am Michael Bay. Here we go! Ready and fire! Hello again and welcome back to another special BAM edition of the Film Effect Podcast, the weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it that full Film Effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is Armageddon. We're going to the top, baby! Big time! Somebody dial 911! What hit us? Small asteroid fragments. This morning. How big were those? Those were nothing. The size of basketballs and Volkswagens. This new one you're tracking, how big? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. Half the world will be incinerated by the heat blast. The rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. Hitting a rock from the outside won't do the job. So we nuke this thing from the inside? How? We drill. We're bringing the world's best deep core driller. The United States government has just asked us to save the world. We're talking about space, right? Outer space? This is like deep blue hero stuff. I'm there. I'm with you. Beam me up, Scotty. I want all of you listening to know that everything that can be done to wage this terrible battle is being called into service. May we all see these events through with the courage worthy of this challenge. All right, flight directors, I want the go-no-go for launch. Booster, go flight. GMC, go flight. Hey, Harry, you know we're sitting on four million pounds of fuel, one nuclear weapon, and a thing that has 200,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? We're going. Okay, John. 
gentlemen. You're warriors up there. You're already heroes. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. The dreams of an entire planet are focused on the 14 brave souls traveling into the heavens. Astronauts, welcome to space. It's about time. I haven't flown up in about an hour. Let's start praying about right now. Listen, this is a kick-ass ride. Touchstone Pictures presents Bruce Willis, Billy Bob Thornton, Liv Tyler, Ben Affleck, Will Patton, and Steve Buscemi. Just hold on! Jerry Bruckheimer production, directed by Michael Bay. After discovering that an asteroid the size of Texas is going to impact Earth in less than a month, NASA recruits a misfit team of deep core drillers to save the planet. Okay, Michael Bay's Bayhem continues with Armageddon. And let me tell you, so this is the one that Sean picked out. Obviously, it was Gonna make the lineup anyway, but Sean wanted to do this. Um, just gonna announce Sean's obviously not here. Corey stepped in. Um, for those of you who don't listen to fewer casts, Sean's gonna be taking the next couple weeks off. So just personal stuff. He'll be back in the meantime. Corey stepping in. We're here doing the damn thing. You wanted to hear about Armageddon? You're gonna hear about Armageddon today. Because I got plenty to say. I mean, and that's not a bad thing. I love this movie. I watched... I, I, hang on, let me pull up the post. I actually posted something on my Facebook account yesterday after I finished this. Um, and this pretty much is, you know... I'm not going to go into my overall thoughts, but like just a little tease. Alright, so I watched Armageddon this morning for an upcoming episode. And here's my opinion in a nutshell. Other than Aerosmith being crammed down my throat for the duration of the film, I was floored. I'm being dead serious. I've never once watched this film and genuinely enjoyed it the way I did today. Yeah, I get the, ridic the ridiculousness of the overall plot, but that aside, I think it's fucking incredible, and it's now my favorite film that Bay has ever directed. And then I kept going on and on and on, which I'm not going to recite because we have an episode to talk about. But yeah, that just... A little taste to give you guys an example of where my head's at, where my opinion is on this movie. I, I get the, like I said, the, the joke of the plot, but putting that aside, I think this movie is fucking incredible. Curious to hear what your initial thoughts are. Well, I mean, I've always loved the movie. I mean, I've always enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. You know, ever since uh -huh. I first saw it, uh, you know, it's not my favorite Bay movie. I think I said before, The Rock is my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, that and that's just to me, like that's just the most fun. Like that's just the most Bayest Bay movie in my opinion. Uh, this one obviously is as well, uh, but this one kind of crosses over to me. Like this one is almost like an event movie. Like this thing was a phenomenon. Like The Rock was a hit. Bad Boys was a hit. 
Armageddon went to another level. Like Armageddon was everywhere. Dude. If someone asked, if someone asked me to like uh, give them a movie that could portray like a '90s blockbuster, Armageddon would be at the top of my list. It just, it just fits into that era so well. It just takes me back to then. And they just don't make movies like this anymore. Like you just don't see it. Like you see big movies, but it's all. IP and comic book and I'm not saying that is a bad thing but it's just a fact they don't make original sci-fi disaster movies like this anymore I mean hell moonfall just <laughs> bombed terribly at the box office a couple months ago they it just doesn't happen anymore so this is just a time capsule of the late 90s and early 2000s and really the best that that era had to offer in my opinion um, July 4th weekend, 1998, this movie was fucking lit. This was everything. This, like you said, was a worldwide event. God damn, this movie was just... And I, I, I you know what? I was there for it. Let's just get into it. First time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time so technically that's my second time and i don't i don't i don't want to suck at it so if i'm not up to so you're goddamn right i was there opening weekend for this movie uh opening weekend i, I believe i went that saturday night matter of fact it was because it was me my cousin tina cousin carrie and carrie's husband tony and the four of us went to don pablo's across the uh the theater uh the avenue it was my first time eating there and just naturally became my favorite fucking restaurant <laughs> until they closed up a few years ago out I of the blue. I fucking love that place. I oh, remember gosh. that shit. But anyway, it's a different story for a different episode. But this, yeah, dude, it, it was just, I remember making a joke to Tony about him. I, 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 in not so many words, called him a pussy. And he got, I remember that night very well because he was so pissed off at me for like the whole night. He was a big baby. So the, the dumbest shit got to him. So uh, apparently me calling him, you know, a, a pussy or something of, of that nature just upset him to the core for the rest of the night. To the point where I had to actually go and apologize to him after the movie was over. But anyway, back to the movie itself. Fucking loved it. It rocked. Uh, the summer of 98 was awesome. I was thinking about that this morning. Not just Armageddon. Just there, there were a lot of movies. Um, there's something about Mary, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, for, for us, horror heads, like Disturbing Behavior was another one that I remember coming out in the summer of '98 that I saw in the theater. Is that the um, one where like Will Sadler catches rats? Is that the yeah. movie I'm thinking of? Yeah, yeah, do good things, <laughs> Lunch Boy. Um, and of course, Halloween H2O came out that summer. Lethal Weapon 4. It was a big summer. So, um, and of course, Armageddon and another film that we're going to get into uh, shortly. How about you, Corey? What was your first time seeing this like? Uh, I distinctly remember it was a matinee showing and the whole fam was out. Uh, we went over to the East Point movies. Uh, it was an auditorium for, I remember it was really busy. Yes. Like the place was packed. Like, Dude, I remember this struck me up. as a movie you saw with the whole family. Sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to cut in, but yeah, it just totally strikes me as a movie you saw with, like, fucking Wiggy, Ron, Eric, Sarah, the whole gang was there. I love it. 
Everybody was there. Uh, I think even maybe my grandparents. I could be wrong about that because once in a while they would come to the movies. Uh, you know John and Irene were there. You know yeah. they were there. So uh, John and Irene were very possibly there. And uh, I just remember lining up, just being excited. Like the buzz, even though we were waiting in line, the buzz like in the room waiting to get in was like massive. Yeah. And then I remember the ticket taker is like, enjoy it. You're going to have fun. Like, cause it was in the big auditorium auditorium four was like the stadium seating with the awesome audio, uh, that would rock the whole place. And I remember that, just being blown away. Like, that state of the art THX sound. Yeah. And I just remember being blown away. I was like, what am I watching? I was like, I love this. Cause at that point, like I was aware who Bay was like, this was the first time, like I had seen his previous films, but this was kind of his coming out party to, I think the masses, like everybody knew who Michael Bay was after this movie. And everybody his first PG 13 movie. Yeah. It was just huge. Like I remember like, Oh yeah, this, the Bay, like I remember bad boys. I like that. And I love the rock. So I was just so excited and just this just was like his fucking Ben-Hur. Like it was just so epic. Like even big budget of movies nowadays, like this movie just feels big. Like it just feels epic and worldwide. And, you know, even even though a movie might try to do that, I think this movie captures that very well. Uh, the whole world's in trouble and just shit is huge and the stakes are huge. So I just remember being glued to my seat on the edge of my seat tears were coming down at the end like this movie had me hook line and sinker the whole way and i just remember having such a good time watching it absolutely absolutely all right story time tell me a story wait like my story no not your story a story since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper tell me a story I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. Initially, I was going to talk about the obvious story behind this and Deep Impact. We'll get into that momentarily. Um, because I actually discovered something doing my research that I actually learned for the first time. Yeah, me learning something new about Armageddon for my first time. So Bruce Willis, did you know why he got or how he got cast in this movie? Yeah, why he's in this movie. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know a ton about this movie. Uh, you know, I was a last minute to be on this episode, so... Uh, it's, you know, my knowledge of the behind the scenes is kind of limited on this. So I'm curious. Okay. So apparently in Bruce, uh, in 97, Bruce Willis was cast in, um, Broadway brawler. It was an unfinished 1997 romantic comedy film that was to be directed by Lee Grant starring Bruce Willis and Mara Tierney. It was co-produced by Bruce Willis and Joseph Fury for, Synergy Pictures and was to have been distributed by the uh, the Walt Disney Company. So, um, Daniel Baldwin was in this movie. Jennifer Lewis was in this movie. Um, it's unclear, you know, how much was shot before production folded, but it was uh, it was to be entirely shot in Wilmington, Delaware. Shout out Wilmington, or up the street from us. It was about 
Bruce Willis's character named Eddie Kapinski, who was a has been retired professional ice hockey player who starts up a relationship with a character played by uh, Maura Tierney. The film was to have been it was like it was basically uh, since Sony had a hit with Jerry Maguire in '96, this was going to be that answer, their answer to Jerry Maguire. So sort of like a com- romantic comedy involving you know a sports player in this case, you know, or in Jerry Maguire's case, an agent, but in this one's a player or has been player. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm kind of like reading this you know, kind of jerky because I, I'm, I'm reading everything out loud stuff that even I haven't even finished reading myself. So I just kind of read the cliffs notes of this movie when I first was doing my research and I was like, holy shit. So here's the failure part. After approximately two years of pre-production being completed as well as 20 days of filming, the production was halted uh, due to a criminous environment on set. Willis was dissatisfied with the performance of multiple members of the crew, including the cinematographer, the wardrobe designer, and the director himself, um, who were all terminated, along with several cast members. And then, as more than half of the film's $28 million budget had been spent already, Dennis, Dennis, Bruce Willis brought in director Dennis Dugan to carry on production. You know who Dennis Dugan is? That's Sandler's boy. I was going to say, he sounds familiar, but uh, I'm not exact. Yeah, just saying his name, I'm not exactly sure where he's directed, but I, I've definitely heard his name before. He's Sandler's boy. He directed Happy Gilmore, Big Daddy, I Now I now Pronounce You, Chuck and Larry, Grown Ups, Grown Ups 2, Just Go oh, With God. It. You had me for the first few. He's directed, <laughs> like, everything, almost. He's pretty much directed 75% of the film Sandler's done. So they brought him in, but production folded before he was even able to shoot anything. Uh, the agents of the other actors publicly expressed a belief that these actors would be paid in full, regardless of the folding of production. Uh, they later were reported to have reached an amicable settlement out of court. It is extremely unusual for such a large budget production to simply end without a finished product. But this is what happened, and so the consequences from it, um, because of Willis's actions and behavior, left him with a difficult position with Disney. Uh, this Synergy company I mentioned, yeah, they folded. Willis was hit with a $17.5 million lawsuit to offset the loss to the company. Um, a deal was brokered with uh Jeff Roth, the producer of Disney, uh, Disney producer Jeff Joe Roth, who uh, convinced Willis to take a three-picture deal with Disney instead, at a greatly reduced salary, which Willis agreed to. The first film with this agreement was Armageddon, for which Willis received three million dollars, which was a significant pay cut from his normal asking price of twenty million dollars. That's seventeen dollars. seventeen million dollar difference went towards the lawsuit. See what you know I'm talking about the difference would cover the money lost. Yeah, it makes sense. I bet you he's kicking himself after the box office though that that <laughs> know, wasn't right? like a normal pay where he maybe gets a percentage on the back end. Well hold on a second because the other two movies 
The second one in this agreement was the six cents. And then the third and final was Disney's The Kid. <laughs> That'd be funny if, like, the other two, he, he didn't get a percentage, and then he's like, well, this third one, I need a percentage. I need a piece of the action after these big hits. And oh. then it's the fucking kid. <laughs> All three of them movies combined grossed more than $1.3 billion worldwide. <laughs> and the kid grossed $0.01 billion or right. something. That, that, like, yeah. How much did that make? I'm just curious. I've I'm never sure it seen made that something. Movie. I've never but... seen that movie. Yeah, I I remember watching it once on cable oh, uh, when it was new, and it was as terrible as you could imagine. Bruce Willis didn't I mean, give a shit, and the kid was awful. It made over $100 million, so... Holy shit. Well, Bruce Willis is on fire around then, anyway. I mean, he was. Armageddon, Sixth Sense, like, the Because he was acting. was on fire, yeah. I'm going to say cared. this... I'm going to say this numerous times this episode, spoiler alert... But this is one of the final films where Bruce Willis gives, you know, a rock-solid performance. Yeah, I would say Looper, which was down the road, like, whatever it was, like, 20 years or, See, like, I 15 felt, years after this. I felt this, he like, phoned that movie in. I, I, eh, Looper, I would say, was passable. I, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's, like, a great performance. But I would say that was the last movie I remember seeing Bruce Willis in that I would say was fairly passable that i was like okay he was fine he he wasn't awful right. see so yeah, a broadway brawler that's the uh story for this episode and that's you know a three picture deal that even i didn't know about so the more you know uh that being said before we get into the uh meat of things let's do laptop five rob it's your turn okay i'm feeling kind of basic today top five side ones track ones Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling Top the five destruction films talk about pure chaos global destruction disaster films all right um my number five (laughs) hard rain didn't think i was gonna Uh, put that one out there did you no but i like it uh christian slater morgan freeman and and randy quaid that's a fun movie hard rain gets a bad rap but it's a fun fucking movie and who could forget betty white's also in that movie Ed Asner. It's a good movie. I like uh, Hard Rain. It's it qualifies I, me to put it on the list, number five. Yeah, I I remember liking it. I think I've only seen it maybe twice a while back, so I can't speak on that one that much. But yeah, I remember liking it. I I remember being pretty good. Trying to think outside the box. So yeah, yeah well, five. Yeah, so I'll get into my number five. So it's definitely me thinking outside the box. So this isn't your traditional disaster movie, but to me it's very poignant nowadays. And I rewatched it recently, and it blew me away. It was actually a previous episode on here. Uh, my number five is Contagion. And I picked that because it's not your typical disaster. Like, you don't see shit getting destroyed, like landmarks getting blown up, or uh, weather affecting anything. But... It is a disaster movie because obviously it's a global pandemic that ends up, you know, causing all kinds yeah. of issues. And, hmm. It, how does that sound familiar to today? It, I wonder. It crossed my mind. 
It definitely did. But then so, but then I realized that Godzilla vs. Kong was also a movie. So that became my number four because that movie is just fucking badass. Those two beings go all over the globe and just destroy everything in sight. I love it. It's a fun movie. I gotta go. I gotta go back and rewatch that one. So uh, yeah, number four, Godzilla vs. Kong, baby. How about you? So my number four is actually one that really surprised me. I had a lot more fun with this movie, and don't get me wrong, it's dumb, mindless. Uh, fun but uh it was one that came out a few years back uh Dwayne the Rock Johnson and it was Rampage um I was not expecting to like that movie at all like I I was watching it I think I watched it on cable for the first time uh you know on HBO or whatever and I was like oh man this is I don't know about this I was I wasn't a big fan of San Andreas previously so I was like I don't I I like the rock so I'll watch it and I was surprised. I actually had a good time with that movie. Like just the, I was always a fan of the um, arcade. So just uh, the different animals was awesome seeing them all incarnated. And then like literally this, the ending is just all the animals fucking destroying the skyscraper and just trying to get to the top and ridiculous action. Like the rock was good in it. I just remember having a good time. So I wanted to put that on there. So rampage is my number four. No, I like rampage. I saw rampage in the theater. I actually own Rampage on 4K, so, you know, you're not going to hear any crap coming from me. Uh, my number three, oh shit, we got a fucking first time over here. This is a film effect first. I got a tie. My number three and my number two are tied for second. And they're so close, they're neck and neck, I, I, I could not pick one over the other. Um... But they're neither of them are number one. So next up, film effect first. My number two is both Twister and Independence Day. ID four. So you know, nah, we, I can't blame you we, there. You it talk about we, we were just talking about nineties nostalgia. These movies are just the same. You know, they were big events when they came out. Big, you know destructive you know just mayhem these movies it's they're full of chaos and, and everything and they're fun and that's that's what it's all about it's about having fun and i love the shit out of these movies for what they both are so yeah for me twister independence day are, are both tied for my number three and two or my number two so what's your number three so my number three is probably the worst film on this list. Um, but I wanted to mention it just because it's a personal favorite of mine. It's a guilty pleasure. I think I actually mentioned it recently, but my number three is The Core. Uh, starring oh uh, Aaron Eckhart, Hilary Swank, DJ um, Stanley Tucci. Uh, DJ Qualls, yeah. It is by far the worst movie on my list, but... I don't know. I've just always liked it ever since I watched it for the first time. I think I rented it. I think it's back when I was working at Blockbuster still. Uh, I remember renting it and just being very obviously uh, stupefied. Like my, I lost a few IQ points watching it, but entertained the whole time. It's just ridiculous fun. You can tell they were just like, what if we took Armageddon and put it inside the earth? That's essentially what the movie is like a big cast of, scientist uh going to the core completely ridiculous completely hammy each time someone dies 
but still entertaining. Uh, and, you know, it has a strong cast. Like, even though it's ridiculous writing and not the best acting from any of the cast, it's still got a strong cast. I mean, Stanley Tucci in that movie is fucking awesome. Like, it's one of my favorite roles of his just because it's so hammy and so over the top. And he's such a chicken shit through the whole movie. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, number three is the core for me. Man, who the hell did Stanley Tucci owe money to back in 2003? That's what I want to know. <laughs> to take on that role? Jesus Christ. But you like it, and that's awesome. So, uh, go on, Corey. Number two. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yours was a tie. Which, by the way, isn't the first time on the... Oh, wait a minute. It is the first time, because the Batman episode never aired. That's right. I had a tie on my Batman, um, what we started recording. I was just about to say that. I had a tie, but obviously that never came you to mean, air You yet, mean so. that lost episode that people will never hear? <laughs> yeah, the lost episode that we got to redo. Yes. Yeah, so that my bad. I, I completely forgot about that. I forgot about but it anyway, too. My bad also. <laughs> but anyway, uh, my number two has to be the film we're about to talk about, Armageddon. That's just one of the first movies uh, I think about when I think about this genre. Um, and the funny part is like, it doesn't have a ton of the destruction necessarily on earth, but to me, it just, it epitomizes that genre, just the big action movie, the whole world's going to get destroyed. Um, so it might be lighter on that, but it's definitely, um, you know, one of my favorites. And I think many would consider it, you know, obviously one of the best, which we'll get into soon. Uh, Number one for me is Armageddon, hundred percent. Hands fucking down, baby. This movie's just something else. I can't wait to talk about it. What is your number one? So my number one, uh, you know, I acknowledge uh, Armageddon might be a better film overall, but I had to put it on here as Independence Day. I fucking knew ID4. it. I knew this motherfucker was going to put ID4 for number one. I knew it. I know you. I know you. Sorry, go on, go on. Yeah. So just bear in mind, Independence Day came before Armageddon, and when those special effects came out, I just remember that was like the talk of the town, like seeing the shit get destroyed. To me, that really modernized, because obviously there was disaster movies before, you know, like Towering Inferno and Earthquake. There was stuff, you know, way before this time period, but to me, ID4, Independence Day, really modernized that uh, utilizing the miniatures and the CGI and composite shots. I just remember my jaw was like dropped watching that film in the theater, just seeing the special effects. Will Smith was awesome. Um, you know, and the breakout role of his, the supporting cast. I love me some Bill Pullman as the president, you know, Randy Quaid at Jeff the time. Goldblum. I thought was funny. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum giving the aliens a cold, you know, you gotta fucking love that movie. <laughs> Uh, Randy Quaid is cringeworthy now watching that movie, but back then I thought it was funny, you know, as a kid, it, it was stupid. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. That would always be my favorite. That's always my go-to for destruction. Just seeing all the cities get blown up, seeing the dumbass people on top of the LA buildings getting blown up. <laughs> you know, I, I've always been entertained by that. And, uh, before we move on, I did forget one honorable mention I left off, uh, Volcano. Tommy Lee Jones, just that I have a soft spot for that movie. Just so stupid. I've uh, never trying seen to stop it. A volcano in LA. I've never seen it. Yeah. It's literally Tommy Lee Jones driving around, putting down asphalt and spraying water to stop a volcano, but it's entertaining. It, it It's, it's a fun movie. 
I've just seen like one scene that involves John Carroll Lynch like picking up a guy and like sacrificing himself by jumping into lava and then tossing this dude over his shoulders and I'm like get the fuck out of here oh <laughs> it's completely ridiculous I mean the whole movie I mean all these movies pretty much are completely ridiculous but that one amps it to another level I even as a kid watching that or not as a kid but the teenager or whatever watching that I remember it well this is fucking dumb but it was entertaining Tommy Lee Jones pulled it off uh, you know, I could condone his buffoonery in that movie. That was good. This is dumb, but entertaining. All right, well, then let's jump into the movie, shall we? Here we go! You ever had this liquid death canned water before no i've seen it at the store but i've never had it it's good stuff it's what i drink now <laughs> it's what i drink it's now it's all i drink canned water it's all i drink <laughs> no still drink a lot of coke all right first i want to discuss the elephant in the room i want to talk about the obvious deep impact so this is this this is the summer of 98 of course, Deep Impact comes out first in May, I believe. And then Armageddon two months later. Um, and this was a common thing in Hollywood. I, I don't know if they really do it anymore. If they do, it's far and few in between. But they had a thing for like competing movies of the same plot. Like the year prior to this in 97, it was, you just mentioned the movie Volcano. That also had a rival film called Dante's Peak. Uh, there was, uh, help me out, Corey. I know there's a lot more that I just can't think of off the top of my head where you've got like, uh, a lot of the same. Um, yeah, I, it's hard to think about, but it, it was just, it was just more of a common thing because you would have these pissing contests between, you know, the studio execs and the studios, whereas somebody would buy a script and then somebody else was like, well, we didn't get that script. Let's get another script that's kind of like that. And then they would fast, like one company would fast track it to try to catch up to the other company. And it was just like usually a pissing match or just, you know, a grudge type thing. Like it doesn't really happen anymore. I think studios are, are maybe, I don't know, less competitive, but I think maybe they just realize you have to be more harmonized just because the market isn't what it used to be, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, like it was now. Oh, twi but, twin yeah. movies is what I was thinking of. And more examples. Um, of course, you had Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down back in 2013. The two White House hostage films. 2005 and 2006, you had The Wild in Madagascar. That was the Disney and uh, DreamWorks uh, films. Observe and Report. Paul Blart Mall Cop, that came out, both of them came out in 2009. There was another one. Oh yeah, uh, Friends with Benefits, No Strings Attached, that came out in 2011. So yeah, I mean, and, and the, you know, the biggest one, of course, is the, what we're talking about today. In 98, when you had Deep Impact and Armageddon. It's like, it, it, they're almost... A little too close to home in a sense, except 
one of them's different because one of them actually has the balls to have your uh, <laughs> asteroid make impact, while the other one, and that was what that film was marketed around, whereas Armageddon, it was marketed around the actual experience of being on the asteroid while they try and prevent it from striking the Earth. <laughs> yeah. While we're talking about this, I just remember seeing Deep Impact uh, later. I didn't see it in theaters or anything, so I saw it after Armageddon. I was like, well, I liked Armageddon. I saw it. So Deep Impact looks similar. I saw it in eighth grade with my school, and it was the last time I've seen it. One and done. Yeah, I I remember renting it, like, after, like, years after. Like, I didn't see it for a while. And I was like, I liked Armageddon. You know, how, how bad could it be? And I remember watching it, and I didn't like hate it i just remember being bored i was like yeah this is not armageddon like they just oh man they went the other way with this and to me it's not a bad movie but it's just a boring movie to me like it's it's competently made it's got some good acting boring as shit that's my take on the movie yeah um taylor uni who we just talked about last week on bad boys is in that movie i think she there's a subplot involving her and her strange father, who I think is Brian Cox, if I'm not mistaken. Eli- Elijah Wood. Um, I remember Elijah Wood because he was like trying to get his girlfriend to go with him, and there, yeah, the Le- military's Le- like, Le- nah, fuck them. Lily Sobieski. Yeah, it was like her and her family, and they're like, nah, nah, she could, she gotta stay. Yeah, because <laughs> her her mom's played by Denise Crosby, who was the mother in uh, Pet Cemetery. Um. I don't know why I remember that. Uh, and then I vaguely remember the uh, shuttle crew that went up in space. Robert Duvall, of course. Uh, Mary McCormick, who, are, who is uh, coming off of Howard Stern's private parts. She played Howard Stern's wife. Who else was on that crew? Again, I've seen the film once. I don't know. I don't remember, but... Uh... The other thing I just wanted to say real quick while we're on the subject, the one that just popped into my head was fucking Ants and a Bug's Life. That was the other one. Oh, was yeah. Like the twin movies. Yeah. That was another one between Disney and uh, Pixar. Not Pixar, DreamWorks. Yeah. yeah it was just pissing matches. That's all it is. No, it wasn't Brian Cox. No. But it was Denise Crosby. I was just wrong about Brian Cox. Kurt Wood Smith's in that movie. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, Blair Underwood's part of that crew. That's right. Do Grace Scott. There's a lot of random people in this movie. John Favreau. He's it's part, a big cast. He's part I mean, of the I crew. remember Yeah, I remember it's a big cast. I just Morgan Freeman yeah. is the president. Of course he is. <laughs> I think if I yeah, he was I remember the like made an address. Like, when they failed or whatever. I have a feeling if I watched it now, I'd probably appreciate it a lot more. I just never had the desire to revisit. You know, I'll be honest. These type of movies don't appeal to me much anymore. I don't really ever go back and rewatch a whole lot. I mean, Armageddon, I've seen a ton of times. Like, I, you know, it was always on, like, fucking TNT. Like, I would always just pop it on, like, when I was, like, cleaning or doing whatever. So I've seen it a million times, so I haven't seen it in a while. Like I, I used to appreciate these movies a lot more. I kind of got burnt out on them, and I haven't revisited. So you know, Deep Impact might be better than our than I'm giving it credit for. I'll say that. I owned Armageddon on VHS, and then a year later, when I got my first DVD player, 
Um, it was one of those things where after I sent something in, I mailed something in, and I got like five free movies. One of them was Lethal Weapon 4. One of them was something else. I think it was uh, Stepmom. And then, anyway, one of them happened to be this, Armageddon. So, I, I owned this on DVD. And funny enough, that was the last time I owned it. No, I owned the Criterion DVD uh, a couple years later after that came out. I bought that. And that was the last time I owned Armageddon because I've still yet, I've, I've yet to buy the Blu-ray. So, I mean, I'm going to bring it up for a, a particular reason uh, in the plot, but... I watched this for this episode on YouTube. Cause it's free on YouTube this month, ironically enough. So, um, but yeah, so let's get back on track a little bit. Uh, Deep Impact. Um, side note, my notes for this episode came from the infamous commentary track from said Criterion, which is just littered with facts who just you know, shit that came straight from the horse's mouth. So, you know, what more reliable source do you need than the man himself? And Deep Deep Impact came up, came up early in the commentary. Bass says that he was invited to a screening of the film at Paramount and felt like everyone was watching him. After the screening, he felt that Deep Impact was a much different movie than Armageddon and that Armageddon was a film that would resonate more with mass audiences. He does recognize that Deep Impact probably ate into Armageddon's business, but still feels that they are much different movies. He does mention later after the launch sequence how much more realistic how much more realistic the Earth looks in Armageddon than it does in Deep Impact. The gauntlet is thrown down late, but it's thrown down regardless. Um So what got him into this from Disney? Michael Bay, he signed the deal with Disney for two movies. The first being The Rock, and then it was this. Uh, he signed for two films because he was certain The Rock would be a financial failure coming out the same summer as Independence Day, Twister, and Mission Impossible. So he wanted to make sure that he'd be tied down for one more film in case that happened. But once The Rock proved a success, Bay found himself in a predicament. He looked through every script Disney had, but none of them appealed to him. He did the same with scripts Jerry Buckheimer had with similar results. Bass set out with, with screenwriter um, Jonathan Hazley, who he had worked with on The Rock and who had Bay claims as a good, good writer with big ideas. Hensley had the idea that it would end up becoming Armageddon. It was Joe Roth's idea to call the film Armageddon after Bay and Hensley pitched the idea. Roth also decided at the time it would be Disney's biggest film of 1998. Um, what else do I have? I have two more notes here. No, three more before we get into the actual plot. NASA famously shows this film during their management training program. New managers are given the task of trying to spot as many errors as possible. At least 168 have been found. Holy shit. No one's coming to Armageddon for its fact, you know, his uh, it's for its factual authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sitting there thinking, "Wow, oh, Belly Bob, that's a 
that's you know that's what i think nasa's actually like right there or the guy running in the room yeah. with the papers we got 18 days oh god yeah i know talk about the acting that's fucking booty Elfman too more on him in a little bit they uh thinks armageddon is his worst film i will apologize for armageddon because we had to do the whole movie in 16 weeks he told the miami herald in 2013 it was a massive undertaking that was not fair to the movie. I would redo the entire third act if I could. That's not fair. I would keep the third act. I enjoy the third act. I think it's one of the strongest parts of the film, honestly. <laughs> when did Bay do that interview? Was it... 2013. When, Jesus Christ. I mean, had he seen any of his Transformer movies? Oh, dude, he was in the thick of it then, too. Uh, last note, this was the last, speaking of Criterion, this was the last feature film released on the Laserdisc home video uh, format for uh, Criterion, which began yeah. producing Laserdisc editions of films in 1984. The company then migrated over to producing DVD editions of the film library, making it Criterion Collection Laserdisc number 384. And, you know, I just want to say, if that doesn't tell you something about this movie, the fact that this movie, a big blockbuster tentpole movie, got a Criterion release. You don't see that a ton on Criterion. The fact that this movie got that shows how relevant and how good this movie actually is. The fact that it was on there. You know The Rock has a Criterion edition, right? Yeah, and like you know, I'm not saying Criterion only puts out artsy stuff. I know, but, I know. You know let's let's I, be I real. Just, the big blockbuster. Some people, some people don't. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had that. That's one I've never had. The Armageddon um, Criterion. I was never. I don't know. I just wasn't interested at the time when it was out, like in print. And then now I just have like the plain Jane Blu-ray, and I wish I had the old school DVD. I mean, it's the same movie. It's not like it's a, it's a different cut or anything like that. It's just got a bunch of bonus features and stuff. Like, I think the film was a two-disc set. Um, it's been a while. I know The Rock was. The Rock had one of those thick, real thick uh, Criterion cases. Well, yeah, it's not necessarily just Armageddon. There is... Robo- uh, Robocop, also at Criterion. Robocop, there... Uh, uh, the unfortunate thing was back when I was still collecting DVDs, you know, back before Blu-ray, I just didn't have as much money. So I was like, okay, I can either buy like four or five regular DVDs or I can buy like a couple Criterion. So I, I just wish I could have collected some of those because, yeah, Robocop would be a prime example. I mean, I have the era of Blu-ray, which is fucking awesome, but I would have liked to have oh, yeah. the Criterion as well. And Armageddon's one of those I regret. I, I do remember seeing when it was out. The big thing, or the, the big deal about the RoboCop Criterion edition back 20 years ago when that was out was it was hard to get because it, it went out of print really quick. And at the time, it was the only way you could see the X-rated version of the movie because it had not come out on home video until Criterion put it out um, on their DVD and Laserdisc as well. But uh, And that was hard to get. I remember I got... Those three movies on Criterion, this, The Rock, and RoboCop, uh, because when I was working at Blockbuster, I would have uh, my friend slash co-worker, Jen, she was the one that handled special ordering movies, and every Wednesday, I'd always have a new order for her to put in, and I was, these were three movies that I just put in, you know, not together, but like over the course of time that I happened to, you know, get my hands on, so... Actually, no, I take that back. Two of them. 
I was able to that way. Rock and Armageddon. Robocop, again, because that was hard to find because I was out of print. Uh, that was a rare one. I actually found a used copy of it at Reckon and Tape Traders in Dundalk. So huh. that was one of those just gold mine finds that you come across from time to time. Nowadays, I come across steals like that at uh, the Soundgarden when I go down there. So, uh, but anyway, now that we got all that off our chest, let's get into the actual movie, shall we? Let's Armageddon on. Oh, God. You, you've you been saving that one, haven't you? <laughs> God. That was holstered, yeah. Oh, man. You probably feel so relieved right now you got that out of your system. All right. So the film kicks off with a familiar voice. Who is that, Corey? It's Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston yeah. makes a, a, a voice cameo in this movie. I completely forgot that he opened up the movie. Oh, and I, yeah. And when I was listening to it last night, because I didn't even think about it, when I was watching it last night, I was like, who is that? I was like, I know that voice. And I was like, fucking Charlton Heston. I was like, way to add some class to this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He probably set them back an easy $10 million. Um, So he's opening the movie with a narration as we see prehistoric Earth being destroyed. While Heston talks about how a six-mile-long piece of rock changed the course of our planet. How it happened before, it's going to happen again. It's just a question of when. Um, God damn. So, Bay gets Charlton Heston for this. So, stay with me. And then, um, Tim Burton gets Charlton Heston to, of course, cameo. In Planet of the Apes, right before he retires in 2001. But then James Cameron, who's also kind of like a mentor to Michael Bay, was able to get him for True Lies. <laughs> so it's like all these big time directors and in, in, in their heyday are like trying to get a piece of that Charlton Heston pie before he's, you know, quits acting. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I I will say I think Bay made a good call because it without even knowing it's Charlton Heston, the voice just adds that documentary. Oh yeah, it really like, credible adds. credible feel. Yeah, and it you know it's good information because it sets up the threat. Like you know, the asteroid that wiped out all the dinosaurs was what'd you say it was six miles long or whatever? Six miles long, yeah. And then the one in this one is the size of Texas, as they describe it. So you know it sets up the threat because. You know, most people don't know how big an asteroid needs to be before it destroys the horror. So, you know, it sets it up well and it adds like this, you know, credibility to it at the beginning. This is why, people, you should have stayed awake in physics class. It's not about the size. It's about the velocity. It's a lot of factors. I mean, you can have a little. This is why they always say, like, don't drop pennies off of rooftops. Because that penny can fatally kill somebody. Why? Again, it's not about the size. It's about the velocity, the weight, you know, the the, the speed of, of, of it's, it's a lot of shit. And I'm not going to turn this into a fucking scientific podcast over. Anyway, yeah. so, um, yeah, we get the title that's what, card. That's what I tell my wife all the time. It's not the size, it's the velocity. That's right. Cue the title card. And then we, we cut to 65 million years later cute we see an astronaut working on a satellite 
above the orbit, above our Earth. He's nervous as all hell. So we got Billy Bob's Truman. He's on. Uh, he's at down in Houston. Jumps on to calm the guy down, to calm this dude down. He's like nervous as shit. He's acting like he's fucking about to, you know, detonate a bomb or something. Like he's fucking Jeff Bridges and blown away. Suddenly, the satellite and our astronaut friend are destroyed by a massive meteor shower that's heading towards the Atlantic. Um, so according to Michael Bay, I'm sorry, according to Jerry Bruckheimer, the film originally opened with kids spotting the asteroid. They were detained by the government. The producer felt that it was, wasn't was the right tone to start to film off with. So, Tony Gilroy came in and had a hand in the restructuring of the film. And, uh, yeah, that's how all this came to be. So, then we get this guy, Carl, who's got this, like, big-ass satellite looking up into the stars. And his, uh, his wife, Dottie, comes in. Grace Zabriskie, fucking, um, she's, I got, I know her from stupid shit, like, fucking, uh, a couple episodes of Tales from the Crypt, and she was also on, or also in, um, Child's Play 2, she was the, uh, the, the Foster Center, like, director. Yeah, yeah, now I remember, now that you say that. Yeah, because she's like, you know, fucking dollar. She takes the she takes Chucky or something, and and he's like amazing, isn't it? And stabs her, and she falls into the fucking photocopier. Anyway, she's the wife, Dottie. She comes in to tell him that his Stouffer's pot pie has been on the table for ten hours, and uh, he thinks that he's discovered something big, and orders her to go get his phone book. Get the phone book. Get the phone book. Get the phone book. Your Stouffer's pot pie's been on the table almost 10 hours. I want a divorce. Daddy, I'm on to something bigger. I, I don't know what this is, but it looks like something's burning up there. Go get my phone book, will you? Get my phone book. Get those names of those guys from NASA. Excuse me, am I wearing a sign that says, Carl Slave? Go get my goddamn phone book! Get the book! Get the book! I think it's funny that like this guy has this huge satellite, but he seems like a backwards redneck guy. Like I just think that's funny. He's got this huge fucking satellite, but he's like, "Damn you, devil woman, get me my phone book!" Like he's just like this backwards sounding guy. It's just funny. Yeah, it's this fucking Midwest old couple who have been at it for years, and you can just tell they have a long, boring life together, and they're just tired of one another and. I don't know. It's it's it is what it is. I, I can't really comment too much on it. Uh, then we suddenly cut to New York City with Eddie Griffin and his French bulldog, Little Richie, who's riding on a bike. Then we got fucking Mr. Cooper himself, Mark Curry, as a taxi driver. I always fucking I I always dude fucking Mike Curry's in this movie. That tells you right there. That dates this movie for you. The fact that Mark Curry's in this film was the goddamn taxi driver. Yeah, you don't see him around anymore, but yeah, I just forgot. He's like, we're not shopping. We're sitting in the traffic jam. Like, I completely forgot about his uh, little part in the movie. Because she's like, oh, we want to go shopping. And he goes, me too. So we are in traffic. <laughs> I know, I love his line. Me too. It's funny shit. Um, 
yeah, this this French bull gets out and goes after this this Godzilla blow up because you got to remember at this time Godzilla was like two weeks away from its release or no Godzilla had already come out at this point because Godzilla came out Memorial Day '98 and this came out Fourth of July '98 so yeah so so I guess I don't know Godzilla. Michael Bay had something to say about Godzilla, I guess. So he had this dog tear it up. Suddenly the owner comes over and gets into, you know, a little pushy contest of Eddie Griffin. Suddenly he gets fucking knocked down into the ground by a meteor. All of a sudden it's fucking just shower. Meteor balls just showering down across New York City. Just people are just ducking and running and... Shit's exploding. It's a mayhem. May, yeah, mayhem. It's a bay film, so you know. Bayhem. It's exactly <laughs> boom. Bayhem. Everything's everywhere, in your face. Fire, flames, explosions, glass, debris, smoke. Cars flipping. And let me just say, like, I call into question, like, okay, these things are hitting. They would definitely just put holes in the ground and destroy shit. But would cars really just explode? I don't know. Like, uh, why would it cause a car to explode? But it's still fucking awesome. Just watching shit flip over and explode either way yeah i agree so we go um oh yeah the dog the dog you know like i said destroying these godzilla dolls they shipped the dog onto the set at the price of 20 grand a day they had to hold cardboard boxes up in front of the godzilla dolls to keep the dog from destroying them until it was time Bay also notes that, as a rule, you never kill a dog. Pretty sure he's just talking about on film, but I could be wrong. Now, it's funny that you mentioned that, because I remember, that's one distinct thing I remember in the theater, like, everybody thinking the dog was dead for a second and, like, gasping. And I even remember somebody sitting near me, he's like, ah, not the dog. Like, it was just everybody was sad until you see the dog hanging there. Yeah. Um... And the New York Street, yeah, the New York Street scene that I'm just talking about here, uh, it took four days to shoot. According to Bay, they designed a system of flipping cars so that they could flip them very close to the extras without actually hitting any of them. Actually, no dogs were hit by these flipped cars either because you never kill a dog, right? So then we got Carl, who calls Truman and tells him about the Texas-sized asteroid that's head for Earth. Names it after his wife, Dottie, who's a vicious, <laughs> life-sucking bitch from where there is no escape. I know. It's just like you see the wife smiling for like a second because yeah. she thinks it's nice, and then it turns into the yeah, the vicious, life-sucking death that cannot be escaped. I love that fucking line. Yeah, it's, it's one of the funniest shit. things in the movie. It is, it is. Uh, and then uh, this, yeah, this scene here, uh, Michael Bay's got a cameo as one of the NASA scientists. He's shown after Carl asked to name the asteroid Dottie. You see him like right in front of your screen for like two seconds. Yeah. And he looks like Bay. Like if you know oh, yeah. what he looks like, you'll, you'll recognize him. He's got the Bay hair and everything. It's not like a, oh, yeah. uh, extremely hidden cameo. If you know, uh, what the man looks like. Um, according to Affleck, Billy Bob Thornton once told him that Armageddon was going to be mostly about he and Bruce Willis's character. 
that Affleck was going to be an extra until Titanic came out. Thornton told him the love story was such a factor in that movie becoming a monster success that the people behind Armageddon felt that there needed to be a strong love story there too. Willis mentions that he was told that he and Thornton couldn't carry the film themselves, so the love story was added. Willis jokes that Bay continually reminded Affleck that his part could be cut completely um, if they ever needed to do so. Okay. So let's just jump into it right now and have the Billy Bob conversation. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Billy Bob Thornton from such gems as Sling Blade. You know, I'm going to go out here and say Sling Blade was my introduction to Billy Bob Thornton. That was the first movie well, I, I saw. Was, I think it was everybody's. You know, it was like this breakout thing. Mm-hmm. Was it though? Was Sling Blade really the big successful popular film that everyone remembered it being back in '96? Because I really don't. Eh, I it know wasn't me, awards, you, darling. me, it, you, and it wasn't a big box it. office. It was an awards, darling. It, it got a, it got its name out there. Maybe not necessarily to like the John Q public, but for any you know movie fans like we were, uh, it got his name out there, got him started. I think. Uh yeah. And then I remember seeing him pop up in U-Turn from Oliver Stone. What a weird movie. Uh, a Simple Plan. I love Simple Plan, which came out the same year as this. U-Turn. Was that Sean Penn? Yeah. Is that what I'm thinking of? Okay. Sean thinking Penn, of the right movie. Nick Nolte, Jennifer Lopez. A lot of a lot of people pop up in that movie. Joaquin Phoenix. It's, it's really okay. out there. Really, really out there. Um, so, yeah. And then a couple years after this film was when... Billy Bob would, of course, do Monsters Ball, which would kind of elevate him more. And then the following year, Bad Santa. And I think Bad Santa is Billy Bob's magnum opus. Hell yeah. And I loved uh, Bad News Bears, too. I, th- I think he was yeah, born to play that role. I, yeah, I'm on board with you on that. I, I think the Bad News Bears remake from Richard Linklater is kind of underrated i think it's pretty funny not gonna yeah. lie i think it's pretty funny and um also recently billy bob has been doing that goliath show which i'm actually a fan of uh the first season was definitely the best but they've all been good so far he's good in that what's that on uh that's an amazon prime original it's not a big show but um like i said it's good it, it's got um good supporting cast like they bring in big actors like uh William Hurt was uh the big baddie on the first one first season mm, okay. uh, but uh yeah, Billy Bob like it's a role he's uh born to play like he's like a drunk down and out lawyer so it's like perfect for him essentially alright so then where are we at here boop, 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 boop. A lot of notes. This is a lot of movie. Uh, la, 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 la. Where are we at? Really? Holy shit. We got a lot to talk about. Here we go. Truman informs the President of the United States of the asteroid and calls it a global killer. It's the end of mankind. Doesn't matter where it hits, nothing would survive, not even bacteria. And then this is when homeboy Billy Elfman just runs in out of breath and 
says point of impact will occur in 18 days. Bodie Elfman, former husband of Jenna Elfman. I completely forgot how quick the timeline was in this movie. I thought it was like several weeks or like a month or two. I completely forgot it was only 18 days. Yeah, 18 days. Um, hang on, I'm checking something out real quick. He is still the husband of Jenna Elfman. Okay. Uh, where are we at here? Yeah. So he's telling the president about all this global killer, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, yeah, the president here, I want to talk about him because played by Stanley Anderson and, um, the late Stanley Anderson, uh, who was the father of Drew Carey on the Drew Carey show. And he played the president in both this film and the rock. Unnamed, un, you know, there's just an unnamed president who pops in for a scene or two each film. Um, kind of makes you believe that this and the rock are in the same universe. How do you feel about, you know, Mason and, and, and Stanley, you know, dodging asteroids and shit in the same universe as this? I kind of like to imagine it's like the sequel. It could be a sequel to both. It could be like the rock in space or something or the rock <laughs> Armageddon. Right. And it has both of them and the fucking asteroids back for revenge. And it's got fucking uh, biochemical weapons on it from <laughs> some other country or something. So they both got to go up and drill and destroy <laughs> the biochemical shit. <laughs> See, so yeah, we cut to the oil rig with Harry Stamper. Bruce Willis, who's hitting golf balls at protesters while telling, being told that AJ let drill number two chew to 180 feet the night before. So he goes to confront AJ with a shotgun and find, no, with a golf club and finds his daughter Grace in bed. She calls him Harry for some reason. So Harry goes for a shotgun and a chase occurs. You want to see me? Yeah, I'll look for you. Fist. Okay, I can see that. No, you know what, AJ? I'm not fist. You've seen me fist. This is way, way beyond fist, though. You know I shut down number two last night, right? Yeah, man, I had a hunch on that, too. Let me tell you yeah. something. Someday, many years from now, when you're all grown up and you got your own oil company and eight million dollars of your own money on the contract, you can do whatever comes into that little AJ idiot mind of yours you want. But as long as it says Harry Stamper Oil on the rig, you will not disobey my rules. You got that? Yeah, I do got it. Right now, I need to hear five words from you. Uh, I'll never do that again. I'm a fool. That was idiotic. I, I, I mean, that was stupid. I'm an idiot. I know what name's on the sign. I'm not, I What's can't. What's going on? What's going on? Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I screwed up. I'm a little edgy. How long you worked for me? Five wonderful years. In five years, you have never apologized to me this quickly. Something's going on here. I'm going to find out what it is. No, 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 no. Well, I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm trying to learn from the man. What would Harry do? I'm at a loss for words. Okay, I can explain this. You can explain that? I can. I would really like an explanation. You stay right here. 
Grace. Hi, Harry. I have asked you repeatedly to call me Dad. Sorry, Harry. Get up and get your clothes on. You just stay right there. I'll be right back. And it's this big-ass oil rig that they're actually on. Like a real oil rig. Like it was shot on location on uh, off the coast of Galveston. Bay mentions that this is very rare to be able to shoot on a $400 million oil rig. He noticed that since Armageddon was about oil drillers saving the world, they convinced them to allow them to shoot there. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, it... it- it looks awesome. Like you can tell it had to be real. Like there's no way unless the whole movie took place on this oil rig, there's no way they would build a set like that looks that real and that elaborate. And like, I completely forgot like Ben Affleck's like sliding down the fucking cables. Like I completely yeah. forgot about that. It's so ridiculous, but fun. It's fun. It's exactly what this is. This scene is fun and really describes how, you know, main character characteristics, you know, it, it, it showcases their characteristics by showcasing their, uh, they're antics, like the, yeah. like you. Um, I'm, I'm trying to spitball this. Like, uh, you know, we're introduced to all the side characters during this cat and mouse chase, and like everyone feels like a natural camaraderie. That's yeah. that's how yeah. I'm. That's what I take from this scene. You know, we have we get. Set, yeah, setting up the whole crew, uh, but uh, obviously mainly Ben Affleck and. Bruce Willis and also uh, Liv Tyler, but it also sets up the relationship kind of, you know, between uh, father and daughter, Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler, and, uh, you know, between the work relationship with Ben Affleck and uh, Bruce Willis. Like, it just sets up everything very well while having this cool chase. So, yeah, very well done. And we see the kind of brotherhood between Harry and Will Patton's chick. And, uh, you know, like I said, Steve Buscemi gets a moment, uh, actually a bunch of moments. We get the part with, uh, Michael Clark Duncan trying to get in the way, uh, quote unquote, give my man a head start. And, you know, it's just, like I said, it's just boys being boys. Now it's also worth mentioning that I'm not sure if it's this scene. It had to have been the scene cause it happened on this oil rig, the, uh, stunt double for Bruce Willis, Terry Jackson, was almost killed when a large piece of pipe hit him on the head, but he was wearing a, ha- a hard hat. So, you know, he lived. Yay. Um, so anyway, Grace reveals to Harry that she's been seeing AJ for five months. Oh, by the way, I forgot to end the scene by mentioning that uh, he, like, clips him. Like, he shoots at him and shit like that. And, like, he, like... Just clips his skin or whatever, like a little baby gash, as Martin Lawrence would call it. Nothing to lose. Um, so Grace reveals to Harry that she's been seeing AJ for five months and how everyone else on the on the rig helped raise her while he was too busy, including a line about Steve Buscemi's rock hound showing her how to use tampons for the first time. That completely caught me off guard. I forgot that line was in this movie. <laughs> I had to fucking pause the film to finish laughing after that part. Um... She says basically she grew up on the rig with everybody. They're all one big happy fucking family. Um, Liv Tyler turned down the, the film twice before accepting the gig. Um, so yeah, the next scene is Truman, Jason Isaacs. Where are you at on Jason Isaacs? 
Eh, I'm not a huge fan, but I mean, I remember thinking he was a good villain in um, The Patriot. I, I, like, to me, that's like his standout thing that I remember him from. But yeah, I'm not a huge fan. I don't you know dislike him or anything like that. But I, I would definitely say, like, I'm not a, a big fan. He was, um, I'm pulling him up real quick. So, remember him from Event Horizon? See, I've never seen that. Oh, uh, yeah. That's right, he wasn't that. Yeah, I, I didn't think of that. Oh, Patriot is always the first thing, because he's just such, like, a, a evil asshole in that movie. No, I'm surprised you didn't say Lucius Malfoy. Eh, I'm not. A, I've seen the Harry Potter movies. I'm not a big fan. I mean, obviously he was in it. I don't know if he re- like. If I recall, like he's in it more in the later movies, but I don't know how much he actually added to it. Like I don't remember thinking, oh yeah, he was good. Like most of the time, he's just standing there looking kind of evil, <laughs> from what I remember in those movies. Wasn't he the father of what's his name, Draco? Yeah, and like Malfoy, like. He's in a lot, but, like, the dad, like, they just randomly pop up here or there, from what I recall. Like, in the ending movies, when all the wizards are fighting, he's in it more, but right. I wouldn't say, like, it's a, like he was just cashing that Harry Potter money. Like, I wouldn't say it was, like, a standout role or something I necessarily think of when I think of him. Mm. Well, I bring him up because the next scene is him and Truman having a meeting. He's playing the role of Ronald Quincy. Apparently, he's the smartest guy on the planet. And uh, we, get, we get Keith David's General Kimsey. They're all talking yeah. about the asteroid. Kimsey, of course, being the general that he is, wants to nuke it from Earth, but Isaacs tells him that it'll only work if they blow it from the inside. And he helps describe the effect by comparing it to lighting off a firecracker inside of a closed <laughs> fist, which is a good like analogy. Mi- yeah, it's an analogy, but it's like the most Michael Bay analogy you could possibly make. I mean, it's blunt. <laughs> I've always it makes sense. That. Yeah, it, it does, and... You know, I will say Jason Isaacs is good in this role. Like, I think this type of role suits him very well. It's kind of like the snooty, and I don't want to say stuck up, but like he's very uh, confident in himself and intelligent in this movie. So I, I think that suits him very well. It's the only scene that he's in besides this. <clears throat> you don't see him anymore in this film, I don't think. And if we do, he's kind of a background character. I don't think we do see Jason Isaacs. I think he's one of them. Enemy of the state esque one and done performances. We're gonna see him in one scene and see you later. Thanks for showing up. <laughs> nice knowing you. Um, and again, if he's in other, any other scenes in this movie, he's a mere background character and doesn't really have much to do at all. He's highlighted for this scene and this scene only. Call it a cameo for all I care. Um, okay. And after this, we get Harry, uh, who's picked up by a chopper that's ordered by the president. He agrees to go while Chick gets everyone off the rig. His daughter Grace goes as well, as ordered by Harry. So they go to NASA in Houston and is informed of the event. It's classified top secret to prevent total chaos across the globe. Harry then asks, out of the six billion people on the planet, why him? So they show Harry the rig that he designed, and they help him. They need his help while putting it together because uh, their team couldn't do it themselves. So we got this part here. He ridicules the team who were working on it before. It's the same team that's going into space to uh, solve this problem. Harry says drilling's an art. 
he's been drilling all of his life and still doesn't have it all figured out. And his team doesn't know jack about drilling. This team doesn't know jack about drilling. And they don't have that sort of backup plan. Harry can't believe this and says that they're NASA. Probably have a room full of backup geniuses just thinking shit up. All they need to do is drill. No spacewalking or anything like that. They've got two shuttles of people being sent up. So Harry suggests that him and his team go up themselves because no one else can be trusted to pull this off. I just love how Bruce Willis says, like, no astronaut stuff. It's like, what was he imagining? Like, they're going to send him up there and be like, drill, but then also, you know, walk on the moon and take some readings. Like, <laughs> what, did they, what did he fucking think they were going to have him do? Uh, yeah. We got to get your marking up there next to uh, Neil Armstrong. Yeah, making a big event out of this. So then we get this Aerosmith-fueled montage of Harry's men being uh, collected across the country by the FBI. This this whole montage, I have an issue with this after thinking about it. Oh, you have an so issue this, with this? Okay. I'm all ears. I mean, they're, they're fun scenes, watching them get caught and kind of reintroducing uh, or introducing some of the characters. But here's the thing. Like, all this takes place in a short period of time. Like, these guys were in China. Like, how the fuck did they get home from China and, like go back to their normal lives in the span of like, it's literally a day. And then when they see each other after they've all been wrangled, they're acting like they haven't seen each other in like weeks or months. It's like, Hey, hey remember 36 hours ago when we <laughs> saw you? Yeah. Hey, what's up, man? Like, it, it, they're just not, it, I don't think they thought this shit out. Like, I, I really think it's a plot hole that Bay, it never occurred to Bay that all this shit is happening within a few days. And they're like magically all back in the U.S., even though they're on the other side of the world in China. And they're all back to their normal lives, somehow like spread apart, even though they pro- in real life, they'd probably be all be at like fucking L.A. International Airport still. And then like <laughs> they all give each other big hugs like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Like, I don't know. It just popped out to me that it's a big fucking plot hole. I mean, we see how quickly they so all quick. scatter once they're given the night off later on in the movie. So. Yeah, but it it's just really quick. Like, I mean, one's like in, obviously like in the south, or the like I don't know. It's just well, yeah, because we got like, all this is happening very quick. Because we got Ken Campbell's Max is being tattooed. Then we got Rockhound flirting with Shawnee Smith. Then we got Owen Wilson's Oscar. He's the he's the oddball of the bunch because he's fucking out in like Nebraska, like horseback riding and shit. Like, how the hell did he get all the way out there? <laughs> Chicks at the casino, and then there's AJ. So, oh, and AJ started a whole company in the span of a fucking (laughs) few days. Think about that shit for a second. He's got an oil rig and all that shit. Like, how did he get all that? Like, it's been a day or two. (laughs) I never, I never thought of it that way before. Wow. Like, are we sure? Two days. Are we sure it's only been two days? It max because like, no way the whole the whole span of the movie is eighteen days and because doesn't he have Bruce... doesn't he have shit put up that says like AJ for president or some bullshit like that? Yeah, but like when when you really watch, I forget the exact timeline, but like they call Bruce Willis in and then they get these guys back. It had to have been at maximum maybe two or three days. <laughs> Because AJ's like, had enough time to start a fucking business. 
because it's like they're they're like we have because later when they're training they're like oh well you guys have 11 days or 12 days or whatever yeah. so it could have been a few days and this fucker's got a company essence. up and running like this guy like aj i mean he must be a fucking banging entrepreneur to have a fucking company set up in like two or three days when it probably would have took a day and a half to get back from china He's probably on the phone, like, get that shit set up, AJ President. Like, get it all ready for me. Oh, God, that's fucking I, great. I, I know it's a dumb movie, but come on, like, it just, at least to have the characters and knowledge, like, hey, yeah, yeah, it's only been a few days. What the fuck are we doing back here or something? Like, no, oh. they're all acting like they haven't seen each other. <laughs> no, believe it or not, I don't think any less of this movie after this whole fucking five, ten minute session on time in this movie do you understand what i'm saying oh absolutely (laughs) i never thought of it that way i've never thought of it that way before because i shut my brain off and i'm not thinking like that but you know when you actually do think about it it makes no sense that we've had all this time it's like dude times of the essence you know like the movie sets it up like they could have made it 18 months or 18 weeks like fucking bay could have made it whatever but they made it 18 days but then they have this shit like it's just it's just so stupid but yeah i don't it's not a huge thing like i but i was just like laughing about it last night i'm like fucking aj's got a whole company already and it's been like three days he's like i moved on like fuck i got a wife already too motherfucker i'm done it's been three and a half days (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i got a kid oh jesus and then you got that that whole spiel with aj and he's like you know i want to hear five words you know aj i really look up to you and you've been a real hero of mine for a very long time it's like <laughs> okay so that's gonna be a bit throughout this movie uh so harry tells the guys at nasa about their mission i don't know if you have to go we can all just sit here on earth Wait for this big rock to crash into it. Kill everything and everybody we know. The United States government just asked us to save the world. Anybody want to say no? 20 years. I haven't turned you down once. Not about to start now. I'm there. Guess I can't let you go up there alone. I'm with you. I and mean, this is this is historic. Guys, this is like deep blue hero stuff. Of course I'm in. While I don't share his enthusiasm, you know me. Beam me up, Scotty. You all right, Max? I don't, I don't. Whatever you think. What about you? All right, then. We go. I don't mean to be the materialistic weasel of this group, but you think we'll get hazard pay out of Everyone agrees unanimously, but they have terms. Oscar has outstanding parking tickets that he once wiped out. Max wants them back. Max wants them to bring back A-track tapes. One of them wants two foreign women made U.S. citizens. Chick wants a full works emperor's package to Caesar's palace. They all want bullshit stuff, you know. It, it's funny. That they're all over the top like this because no writer wrote this this way. For the scene, Bay had all of them write down on a piece of paper what he would ask them to put down in this situation. So they all pretty much came up with their own answers, and that's what they came up with. I thought that was pretty funny. 
and then also Bruce Willis himself ablated the entire scene from what they had written on the sheets. Like, yeah, you can definitely tell it's a good scene. It's I, funny. I, uh, my favorite part is the White House. He's like, he wants to stay at the White Horse. White Horse. <laughs> I just White, White House. House in the Lincoln I bedroom love that part. I just imagine like Michael Clark Duncan like fucking just watching a movie like laughing his ass off really loud while the president's like trying to give an address or something <laughs> like that. Like, <laughs> I just like to imagine that shit. Yeah, because he wants to stay in the Lincoln room for uh, the whole summer. <laughs> summer with Bear, the White House. Alright. Um, so then... What are we at here? Do, do, do. Oh yeah, another montage. So we got this pre-exam montage with like Chick avoiding getting an enema. Rock Hound's revealed to be a genius. AJ can't stand Harry. Bear cries, and Udo Kier is here as a psychiatrist. They all fail, but NASA approves them anyway. I know my favorite line was the one. Uh, the one doctor doing the anal uh, probe stuff. Oh, she's funny as shit. And I don't know her like, name, we're just but she's here funny. To drill. We're just here to drill, lady. And she's like, me too. Yeah. <laughs> just the fucking look on the her smile, face. smile, it's like, great. So juvenile, and he's just, so funny. And he's just like, get that away from me and runs the other way. Um. So yeah, Bay says, uh, I learned on Bad Boys, working with two improv actors and not having much of a script. Um... He says, talking about how he likes for his actors to improv, particularly in funnier moments in his films. He explains this over the montage of the oil workers getting tested at NASA. Much of this montage was not scripted, merely outlined, and the actors utilized whatever they could find on set to make the moments lighter. Uh, Buscemi claimed that the role of Rockhelm... That sounded weird. Buscemi claimed that the role of Rockhound was pitched to him as a heroic geologist, which he eagerly accepted, wanting to change from the low lives that he's been in the past. Um, He noted that after he had been cast in the role, Rockhound's sleazy characteristics were written into the script. So, Ain't that a bitch? He's like, oh, straightforward. And then they're like, who's in the role? Buscemi? All right, let's fucking change it. Sleaze him up. Let's have him be a pedophile and be <laughs> fucking weird and go crazy. Uh, and then we get William Fickner coming back, making his Hell return yeah. to the film effect. He's there's, here. There's two. There's two people in this movie I completely fucking forgot were in this movie. One was William Fickner, and the other was Keith David. You I forgot, forgot Fickner's in this? I did. I just wow. completely blanked that he was the pilot. Yeah. This is like the one role of his that, like, I think of when I think of Fickner. This and Go are the two movies I think of when I think of that guy. Go and uh, Drive Angry. Uh, I love that movie, Drive Angry. I have never awesome seen movie. that movie all the way through. Yeah, he he's he's like Fickner and up. Like, he's fucking... You know, Nick Cage might be chewing the scenery, but uh, Fickner's kind of nibbling on the fucking edges there. Is it like, good? It, it's pretty good. Is, is it actually good? It it's a good movie. Is it if worth that's me like actually watching and giving a fuck about? If it, you know, if you're just looking for like a exploitation fun type movie, you know, with Nick Cage and William Fickner, sure, it's 
you know, it's a fun movie. Is it fucking high art or Shakespeare or an all-time great? No, but I had fun. I saw it in theaters in 3D, and I watched it again on Blu-ray. It was still fun. Still had a good time. Because I like... Amber Heard. Well, I like... Oh, God, I forgot she's in that. I like Todd... Todd Bridges... Todd Bridges... Todd Farmer and um, Patrick Lussier, who is the, the writer-director combo. Uh, Lussier is Craven's old editor... Um, he's the only person who possesses the Craven cut of Cursed, uh, to this day, and he also has a tie, he has his hand in, like, every single Wes Craven movie from, like, Scream onward, he, you know, edited, and he directed, he directed Dracula 2000, and then he did My Bloody Valentine, the the remake, and then Drive Hard, or or Drive Heavy, what's it called? Drive, drive, <laughs> drive, angry, drive, angry, drive whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's just a fun movie. Fickner is awesome as a villain. He's the devil, right? Uh, he's the devil. Well, he's basically like the devil's accountant. Like Ooh. Nick Cage escapes from hell and he's there. He's like an accountant of souls. Essentially, he's like, hey, your fucking soul is mine. I'm coming for your ass. And that's pretty much it. It's it's pretty fun. So he's like Scorpion in a suit. <laughs> um. So yeah, Fickner's here to give them all a 12-day crash course on space training. We see the two shuttles, the Freedom and the Independence. Their driller, that's called the Armadillo. Then we have another montage. Underwater and air flight training montage. That's three montages in under 30, 30 minutes, kids. Harry also finishes building his rig correctly. And, uh... According to Ben Affleck, the large warehouse-like building at NASA is the largest open-air building in the world. It's so big that they have to keep the air cold or clouds could form. The potential is there for it to rain inside this building. Bay and Bruckheimer also explained the work and convinced it. I'm going to stop my notes here. That's fucking cool as shit. The fact that you've got a room that's so big and it can contain so much moisture... And 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 coldness or whatever you can form clouds. That's cool. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty fucking awesome. But uh, like, I just imagine like, what's what's the weather outside today, and what's the weather in the fucking NASA building yeah. today? Like, I just imagine you have a separate app for that. What are the clouds like in that big ass NASA room you got back there? Um. Yeah, the old mission control is the the most unsexy thing you've ever seen, Michael Bay says, regarding his depiction of NASA. The small scene with Owen Wilson talking into the headset was filmed at the old mission control bay. That's what Bay's talking about. He wanted NASA to feel like a slick, cool company, a company that looked like it had the equipment that went along with the best and brightest minds in the aerospace industry. A lot of the sets and even the exterior of the building serving, of the building serving as NASA in the look in the film, look nothing like the real items. Go figure. According to Bay, the building used in exterior shots is a company that sells herbal products. So then, we see the astronaut, the astronaut, we see the asteroid, and in all of its nuclear glory, we see the green and blue gases coming from it, that's a cool touch, as it's approaching Earth, plans are revealed where they're going to go to the 
Russian space station for fuel before slingshotting around the moon to the backside of the asteroid where they are to land safely. Yeah, right. Oscar asks what the uh, environment will be like and Truman basically describes the scariest environment imaginable. And they're also told that they have a barrier that they've got to meet to blow the rock before reaching. So, if they don't reach this barrier and they blow the rock from the inside out, after reaching it, then the two halves are still going to make contact. They have to hit it before this imaginary line, essentially, so that the fragments can safely pass Earth without being hit. Otherwise, this whole entire plan slash movie will be fucking pointless. Um, and then my note here says, hey guys, it's Chris Ellis, and he's coming back. One of my favorite character actors of all time. I've said it before, I'll say it again, Chris Ellis. I love it when this guy pops up on my screen. Uh, he was the original band members, uh, I mean, the original band manager for uh, the O'Neaters <laughs> and that thing That's you do. That's what I was going to bring up. Yeah, he made that. that he made, he's, he I makes that of. stew. He's got that stew in the back of his truck. Um, and of course, he's just in so many movies. He's in a bunch of Nolan's movies. He's in just everything. This fucking guy shows up in every single movie, and I love him. Yeah. Um, I do. So Harry goes after Grace and AJ, who are alone together. They're up on like the back of this rocket. Or, 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 I don't know what the hell you want to call it. They're somewhere. Somewhere where they're not supposed to be, it looks like. Um, but he's watching them from afar anyway. He sees them and walks away without saying a word. And that's when AJ asks Julie, I'm sorry, Grace, to marry him. I don't know where Julie came from. Uh, my note here is Ben Affleck's teeth were brand new for this movie. They got replaced he noticed earlier in production, Michael Bay did, that Ben Affleck's teeth seemed like baby teeth in the footage that they had shot. He notes that <laughs> Bruckheimer had previously replaced the teeth of a very famous star in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> ah. I just imagine <laughs> Bay like back there playing the camera like he looks like a baby. It's a baby. The baby. It's just such an odd thing. Like, he has fucking baby teeth. Like, I, I don't know. What the fuck you want to do? Give him chiclets? <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, God. <laughs> fucking. I lost my notes, but it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> uh, Brockheimer had previously replaced the teeth of a very famous star in a plane movie. Affleck spent eight hours a day in a dentist chair for a week to get the teeth you see in the film now. These teeth cost roughly 20 grand. This is all just in case you were wondering how Armageddon costs $140 million. 20 grand for teeth is a good start. So did he wear like, did he actually have his teeth replaced or was it like a mouthpiece that he put in? Like, I'm confused. Was no. it real teeth he had replaced? He, he was criticized in like Goodwill hunting and stuff for having just not the best looking teeth for the money he's pulling in. You know what I mean? I guess it was just a procrastination thing or maybe he was just a thing where he was self-conscious or maybe it was just something he didn't see. He don't pay enough attention to shit like that. And he's just like, guys, they're teeth. Whatever. 
So I am. I just, I just like Bay's like NASA needs to be sexier, more boobs in NASA, and fucking Ben Affleck's pretty baby teeth. teeth. We need to fix that shit. We right need pretty. Away. We need pretty. Excuse me. We need pretty white teeth. Jesus, give mm. me a fucking break. Um. So. Yeah, the guys tried telling Harry that Grace has grown up and she's now an adult. And they all helped raise her. And Harry says that she's better than this and better than all of them. As another awkward fade to black occurs. And I'm starting to wonder if this is just the fucking YouTube stream. Because I don't ever recall seeing so many fade to blacks. Time out. So again, I watched this on YouTube. Because for this month, it's one of the free movies that they put up there. And, well... I have a premium account on YouTube anyway, so no commercials. It's convenient, so I'll watch it. Well, I counted eight of these motherfuckers. There were eight scenes that ended with a fucking random fade to black. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was just YouTube, because, I, I mean, I wasn't paying, like, I wasn't watching You would that, notice it, dude. Oh, dude, you would notice it. You would, you would yeah. fucking notice this shit. It was, it was... The first time it happened, I was like, hmm, I don't recall there ever being a fade to black in this movie, but okay, guess I was wrong. And then it happened like five minutes later at the end of a different scene. I was just, okay. Now I'm starting to raise concerns. And then it happened a third time, and I'm like, okay, fuck this. This is definitely the YouTube stream. They didn't cut nothing out because it's still the same runtime as it's supposed to be. 131 minutes long, or 151 minutes long. Excuse me. But anyway, so um, then we get the armadillo at the uh, test site in the desert. And the game plan is revealed to everyone before they have underwater simulation, which they all fail due to AJ's incompetence, which concerns everyone at NASA as it should. Because he's just, Gary, you could do it. You you don't run this team no more. It's my team. They asked me. You go it's all gonna fall on me. It all depends on me. What'd you do? Get the wrong fucking answer or whatever the hell it was. It was wrong. So they gotta pull him out and he's slapping his hands over the water and he's like, meh And then they're like, We got a problem, we gotta fix this now. <laughs> if you don't <laughs> fucking get yeah, a will it? if you don't get a grip on this then we sure as fuck will. You don't want us to. Yeah, I just, I I don't remember how much of a fucking baby uh, Ben Affleck is. And I'm not talking fuck. about his teeth in this oh, situation. I'm talking about just the way he acts. Like, from the moment like you see him, from the moment you see him in this movie, it's like, my first reaction was, holy shit, Affleck's young. But then my my second reaction, not long after that, was, it's kind of a dick, too. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's who he is. Or was. Or whatever. I don't know. Um... So, yeah, Harry demands Truman give his men the right, uh, the night off before they go off in space. And this leads to another montage, uh huh, that shows Rockhound getting 100K, uh, alone for 100K from Bruckheimer Pictures regular Vic Manny, aka Don <laughs> Simpson's former bodyguard turned character actor, who we talked about last I've week. Yeah, we did. I've always loved this scene just because, like, you're not, the you don't look like, so you're not gonna healthy. die, are you? You don't look so high. You, you're gonna just drop dead on me, are you? 
and Buscemi's answer, not any more than you are. Like, I just love that answer because it is funny. Like, I would probably do the same thing. Like, uh, you know, I'm probably going to die, so I might as well just take the 100K. Yeah. Um, Chick, he's like the, the one that rational person of this team. He goes and tries to see his, estate, or his, his estranged son, uh, but instead has to deal with April O'Neil and her wrath of fury. And the uh, <laughs> I forgot she was in. Oh, this. I do yeah. not. This is the one thing I remember her being in. Besides the Ninja Turtles movie, is this that yeah. Judith Hogue? Well, she could have been in the. Do you know the story? Like she could have been in the sequels, but she's like, I don't want to do anything with that kind of violence again. I'm like, you fucking stuck up. Really? Bitch. Like, that movie made. Yeah, that's why she wasn't in any of the sequels. It's not because like she was like busy doing anything else. She literally turned it down because she didn't want to do it because of the violence, which is funny because the second and third one barely have any violence in it. Anyway, they stopped using their weapons. Did you call her a stuck up bitch? It's a, it's a little extreme. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just, she came off as like holier than that. Like you were in the first one. It made you so it gave you somewhat notoriety. Right, and then right. you're going to turn your nose up at coming back and just do nothing. Like, I, I don't know. Like if you're doing other stuff, that's fine. But if you're, I don't know, it's just rub me the wrong way. Those movies, I wouldn't characterize as violent in any way. Like, you know, they have fighting, but I don't think any kid's going to watch that and just turn into a violent, you know, idiot after watching a Ninja Turtles movie. Come on, lady. Right. It's always rubbed me the wrong way. That type of, uh, logic on entertainment. I can't believe she was only 21 when they filmed that movie. Yeah, she definitely looked older. And I'm not saying she looked old, but she definitely looked like, uh, yeah, more mature. I don't know, I guess acted more mature or, or looked more mature. Yeah, I think. Because she was good in the movie. That was a sad part. Like, I, I wanted to see her come back. I remember when I watched the sequel, I was like, who's this? Paige Turco. Yeah, not a fan of hers. <laughs> no, yeah. no offense. No, don't take it. I'm not a fan either. So, all right, back to this movie. Um, so yeah, they all get the night out. Uh, uh, what else we got here? Yeah, AJ and Grace. They have their famous animal crocker scene. Chick goes to see his son. Like I said, uh, yeah, and then the uh, the the team at this. Um, they go to this strip club that looks like an epileptic's worst fucking nightmare that results in a bar brawl and everyone being arrested. Guess what? This scene features yet another fucking Aerosmith song. <laughs> I just want to talk about the animal cracker scene because to me that's like one of the more iconic scenes. In the it movie. is. Like everybody, everybody knows about that scene. You know what I was thinking? What? <laughs> I, I really don't think that the animal cracker qualifies as a cracker. Why? Well, because it's sweet, which to me suggests cookie, and, you know, me putting cheese on something is sort of the defining characteristic of what makes a cracker a cracker. I don't know why I thought of that. I just... Baby, you have such sweet pillow top. I got, like, a little animal cracker Discovery Channel thing happening right here. <laughs> Watch the gazelle as he grazes through the open. Sorry. Now look, as the cheetah approaches, watch as he stalks his prey. Now the gazelle's a little spooked, and he could head north, 
to the ample assistance provided <laughs> by the mountainous peaks above. <laughs> you could go south. The gazelle now faces man's most perilous question. North or south? Way down. Tune in next week. <laughs> Baby, do you think it's possible that anyone else in the world is doing this very same thing at this very same moment? I hope so. Otherwise, what the hell are we trying to save? Like, I just remember watching it back then, and I was like, oh, this is so cute. Like, I had a crush on Liv Tyler, uh, you know, for sure back then, because I loved Empire Records, which she was in. So I had a huge crush on her. And But watching it now, I was like, oh, man, this is not good at all. Like, this is, uh, I don't know, this isn't how, like, even young adults would, I don't know. It, it's there to be playful or whatever, but to be this, this scene didn't age well, <laughs> as opposed to the rest of the movie. Um, all right, so Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler in Armageddon, or Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler in Jersey Girl? Which one you got? I I would take Jersey Girl. I think really? that's far more, uh, yeah. Wow. I, I, I would take their relationship in Jersey Girl. No offense to Jersey Girl. This. I fucking love Jersey Girl. I think that movie is underrated as shit. But I'm surprised to hear you say that. I th- I figured you would have just naturally went with Armageddon because eh, AJ and Grace I mean, are so iconic together as a couple. They have chemistry in the movie. Like I'm not gonna say it's like bad. Fuck yeah. But I remember like really being into it like back when I was younger and watching this movie. I remember thinking they're like they're the best couple and the cracker scene was so cute. But now it just comes off as like yeah like kind of fakish and then also like somebody has an animal cracker fetish and brought it into the bedroom and ended up writing it in the script that's what it seems to me yeah so um now i'll save this for the soundtrack part uh so then we get east east asia aka shanghai getting hit with a surprise meteor attack and we see it get wiped out completely so the destruction of Shanghai was originally intended to be shot using miniatures, and it kind of looks like it is, but it's not. Bay envisioned it uh, told through the eyes of a father and son on a single boat. However, Stage 30 at Sony, the largest soundstage in Hollywood, was rented by the production. The soundstage includes an area for the large indoor lake, which was filled for the scene at a 90-foot pier and a company and set were built. Um, in famous Michael Bay fashion, the director decided the best way to handle the scene was to just blow it all up. And that's exactly what they did. Blew it all up. Because Shanghai had to go in this movie. So, um, Truman then gets a message that Dottie has gone public in one of those 1998 text messages. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, yeah, I, for- I completely forgot because, like, it's just funny to me. Like, you see, Dottie has gone public, and I just think of like the man's wife, like, just being like, "Ah, oh, shit." 
Yeah. Um. Where are we at? Okay, so uh, he gets Harry's assurance that they're gonna go up there and save the planet. He says that if it weren't for his own injuries, that he'd be up there with them. Now we see that he's got some sort of a leg brace. Never once explained what it is, how he got it, what's the severity of it, none of that. Um, the only thing I find in my notes here from the commentary track is Billy Bob Thornton told Michael Bay that his backstory for Truman was that he was on track to join NASA as an astronaut but suffered crippling nerve damage as a young man and was only able to serve as an administer. Um, administrator. Sorry. Bay loved the idea and had a scene written... They said administer. Shut up. <laughs> Bay loved the idea and had a scene written... That refers to this by showing a metal brace on Truman's leg, which we see here. Bay also notes Billy Bob Thornton always likes to play physically imperfect characters. The leg brace Don Truman, Dan Truman wears in the film was his idea. I like it. I like a little mystery. Like I said, it kind of begs the question, what the fuck really happened to your leg? But, I don't know. Other shit going on, I guess. So Harry meets up with Grace... So that she can try to apologize and he stops her, blames himself for bringing her with him everywhere and says she loves her life and doesn't blame him for her mother leaving. She left them both. And I like this father-daughter moment here, especially being, you know, a father to a daughter. She makes him promise that she's that he's coming back. He does before they embrace. And she also asks him to bring back her fiance home with him. So Bay explains some of Harry Stamper's backstory was that was found in an early draft of the f- screenplay. Um, I'll just get down to the last sentence to what this is all getting down to. Originally, there was a bit part for a father um, for Harry, and he was to be played by Lawrence Tierney from Reservoir Dogs. He plays Joe. He was going to be the... Um, uh, Harry's father in this movie before uh, yeah, they were they were cut. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he would have been fine, but I I think it was a fine cut. I don't think we necessarily needed that. You already got enough in here. Yeah, it's already a fucking two and a half hour long movie, so... Um... So now it's time for our crew to depart for space, but not before they have a little sing-off and perform leaving on a jet plane together. All my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. So kiss me and smile for me. Let me know you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know I'll be back again. Leaving on a jet plane. (laughs) I don't know when I'll be back again. Leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. 
So, Truman, this is who you found to save the planet. Cross, you're good to go. One, one sec. Boy, don't take anything seriously. Yeah, reminds me of a guy I used to know. Um, this was shot in two different ways. The way that is used with, um, has him singing to her. The other had just him saying goodbye to her. So screenwriter Scott Rosenberg, who's not credited on the film, told Bay that uh, this was the pivotal scene that would either win or lose the audience completely. It was his idea to have Affleck sing to Tyler. Willis says that he thinks the scene is cute and it works, but on the day of filming, he was sure it would be cut. They looked all around. No. They were all singing in a different key, says Willis. I took quite a bit of work to fix it. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just say, Buscemi had a better voice than I thought. Yeah, he does. When he was singing Dude. this. Yes, and he's like, leaving on it. I was like, holy shit. Buscemi's got a fucking voice. So the studio, I'm sorry, the shuttle that the actors are walking towards in this scene here is an actual shuttle that was being prepped for a launch within a few days. The crew was allowed only a few minutes to uh, shoot, and that's where they shot this stuff here. Uh, Bay remembers the biggest nightmare coming about three weeks before filming was to begin. He had worked with costumes and the production design team to come up with a workable yet cool-looking spacesuit. When he went to see the suits they had made, he says they looked like an Adidas jogging suit. The gloves for the suit were store-bought gardening gloves. The team was painting gray. Apparently, the uh, designer on the suits was French and had worked with Luc Bazan on a previous film. But it was all bullshit. And they... Yeah, he had, he, he he tore into him, told him that he was fucked and everything. <laughs> I can imagine that now, like a fucking gardening glove. Which honestly, if the rest of the suit looked fine, you could get away with something like that with the gloves. But if it all looks, if it looks like a fucking tracksuit, <laughs> oh man, it's funny how you hear stories about that. Sometimes people BSing their way into stuff like that, and then just being completely over their fucking heads. Yeah. Um. All right. So with both parties now in space, it's time to reach the Russian space station. And the guy aboard's been there for the last eighteen months alone. Who is this man, uh, Corey? Ah, good old Peter Stromer, one of my uh, favorite uh, character actors uh, from around this time. Uh, you know, obviously Fargo is like, uh, one of the big ones and also, uh, Slippery Pete, <laughs> one episode shot from Seinfeld, but very memorable. Who is, uh, um, fucking love Strawberry. Who's Stormare usually typecast as? Uh, I mean, it's like usually like the crazy, like Russian guy, like uh, for the most part, but I mean, uh, Fargo, he was like just the quiet serial killer. And where's he from again? Oh, I don't know where he's from. <laughs> he is he is Swedish, not Russian. Yeah. I mean he's always like the Russian guy, but yeah. I I didn't think he was actually Russian, but I knew it was like European. He's Hollywood's type, you know, their their main bat Russian baddie or something like that. I don't know. But um 
Bay and his crew met with people who had stayed on the Mir space station. And that's what this space station resembles, is the Mir. They refer to it the um they refer to it as the glove box of an old car because of how easy it was to lose something inside. The station was filled with junk, mold is growing on the walls, and it smells like leaky sewage. Bay notes the people living on board got a little sloppy. I'm sorry, got a little loopy. Something that they used um, for Peter Stormer's character here. So they did decide uh, not to ever refer to the space station in Armageddon as the mirror for fear that something bad might happen uh, before the film came out. As Michael Bay says, it would have just left the film with a bad joke. Um, and Peter Stormare's character's name is Lev. So Lev brings AJ to assist with the uh, fuel pumping that they're there for, ordering everyone else to touch nothing as this is his station. And he goes down and tells AJ to watch the gauges and to pull the yellow lever in the event of emergency. And then during fueling, guess what you imagine? Fuel sparks, a little spark, which catches fire. We got ourselves a fire going on. All that leak, all that fuel pumping out, that's not good. So uh, during fueling, uh, uh, the fire, um, it shuts off. Both shuttles are at 90% fuel, 97% fuel, as they uh, narrowly escape death. So this is what happens when you leave a civilian to do an astronaut's job. Why on earth would he leave AJ alone in this scenario? <laughs> yeah, it it makes no sense. Just to add more stakes and add more, uh, you know, action, pretty much. I, it sets up the fact that it's not going to be fucking a cakewalk because these guys are not astronauts and probably should not be up there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, where am I at here? So yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. The, 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 they they got to go out. They get locked in, so they got to crawl above like the overpass, which is like full of icicles and shit. Everything's frozen. Uh. Yeah, it's just the the action based on this ten minute scene alone is just phenomenal. And uh, Affleck went into Armageddon with the desire to perform all of his own stunts. The space station sequence, one of the first scenes filmed in the movie, cured him of this. The moment when his character is climbing the ladder and a fireball passes by him, it was a little too close for the actor. He decided after <laughs> that that he wasn't as gutsy as he liked to think and left the stunts to the stunt team. Of course, Bay would goat uh, would goad uh, Baflecht into doing some some of these stunts regardless. I think there was much <laughs> ego and testosterone running around on that set. Jesus. I, I thought you were going to say like, Ben Affleck was doing all his own stunts until fucking Bay told him he had baby teeth. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, fuck you, you son of a bitch. I don't anymore. <laughs> God damn baby teeth. Uh, but yeah, that this whole scene, like, on a, honestly, this, this scene could be the highlight scene in a lot of other, uh, you know, science fiction or action type movies. 
So the fact that it's just like a minor bump on the road in this movie just shows just how packed this movie is. Because, I mean, like the whole just, you know, basically uh, last third of this movie is just insane with the tension and all the crazy action and shit. So it just shows you like just the level that this movie is and how it delivers and just how well uh, this stuff is shot and how well Bay thinks everything out. Um, where are we at now? So, yeah. So the, like I said, they, they make it and then they reach the slingshot part of the mission. So they're doing this, all the G's that are happening. They get to get to 11 G's, which is insane. They're all freaking out, but fucking not Lev. Lev's laughing the entire goddamn scene like he's just never seen something as funny before in his life. It's awesome. Um, and the shuttles reach the tail of Dottie and go in for landing. Independence, which is hit by debris and contains one of the armadillos as well as AJ, Bear, Oscar, and Levy. I'm sorry, Lev. Crashes while Freedom crash lands over 26 miles past their landing mark. Uh, this is when Rockhound speaks up displaying his inner genius and confirms that they landed on a piece of metal. So the sound effects there on the asteroid are totally inaccurate. There's no sound in the vacuum of space. The only audible sounds would be <laughs> the ones made in space with packets of air inside, including the shuttle, the armadillo, and in the spacesuits. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because uh, earlier in, with the shot of the asteroid... Uh, or meteor or whatever i forget what it's called but uh earlier with this shot like you see it coming and it's got like this loud rumble and noise and i'm like yeah in real life it would just be a shot and it'd be fucking silent like there would be nothing like you wouldn't hear shit <laughs> all right so um meanwhile back on independence it's revealed through the fire and flames Remember, kids, you need oxygen to create fire. That AJ, Lev, and Bear survived. Oscar's mask shattered, wrecking him, killing him, destroying him. He is dead. Everyone else has blasted from, was blasted from the wreck into space. So, yeah, the scene here was the was filmed the, the first day, first night, rather, was this scene here, uh... Affleck, Stormare, and Michael Clark Duncan, who were all in this together, were essentially used as guinea pigs to test how the space lot, the spacesuits looked and fit before nervous, nervous before Willis, who started late on the film and was very nervous about the suits, came to the set. Uh, let's see, what else, what else? So, uh, I guess people were also scared for their jobs, because Michael Clark Duncan was also uh, afraid of being replaced, even though he wasn't. Um, I don't know, must have been a phase. A weird one, but one. Uh, back at the Freedom, the crew go out on their armadillo to see what they're dealing with, and it's mostly iron rock that they've got to dig through. Max starts to operate the armadillo when we see the rocks are already broken the drill head um, after only drilling for 10 minutes. So, yeah, won't be there a long time. Um, I don't know. 
Do you have anything you want to add real quick? Sorry, I was on mute. Um, yeah, I just want to add, like, the feeling of, like, oh, shit. Because, like, literally, nothing has gone right so far. Like, <laughs> the refueling, they fucking blew up the space station. You know, they get the slingshot, they get to the fucking asteroid, and one of the ships is fucking instantly gone. They land in the wrong spot. And then they start drilling, and the fucking drill is gone after, like... I forget, they, they say how many feet. Like, they're, like, 20 feet deep or some shit, like something really light and they've already blown one of their heads and it's just a textbook way of adding tension like you know you just keep winding it up you just keep adding and adding and adding uh you know just fucking nothing's easy and it just keeps adding layers and i think that's what makes you know basically this whole finale just so effective and just kind of gets you on the edge of your seat just because fucking nothing's been going right some characters are already dead so you just really don't know what's going to happen right. you know, the first time you're watching it. Yeah. Plus, you just had Deep Impact where they <laughs> fucking failed and everybody right, right. <laughs> dies, essentially, except for the people on the safe uh, spot. So you don't know what how this movie's going. All right. So AJ orders Lev Bear onto the Armadillo, which also survived the wreck, so they can go find Freedom. He blasts open a wall with the device's machine gun feature. Because why the fuck not? And they take off. Alright, few notes on the Armadillo. Uh, it was built specifically for Armageddon. NASA doesn't have anything like it. It cost roughly a million dollars. And according to Bay, it was never broke. Evidently, they never took it past 30... 30 I'm sorry. 3,000 miles without getting the oil changed. Um... Yeah. There was a toy line. Did you know that for this movie? Yeah, that's one thing I didn't know. I mean, when this came out, you know, we were at the age we were kind of like tweens, so it wouldn't have really catered to us. But yeah, I had no idea that there was toy. I mean, it doesn't surprise me because this is at the tail end of the era where everything had toys. You know, any successful movie had toys. So uh, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it was PG-13. Yeah, it was Mattel. So... Um. Ooh. Damn it! Where am I at? Yeah. Okay. So. Um. Yeah, and also the Gatling gun that was on the Armadillo was apparently an actual gun from World War Two. A full-time police officer had to accompany and guard it whenever they went. It fires roughly a thousand rounds in 15 seconds. Uh, it's revealed that NASA, it's revealed at NASA that they've only got seven minutes of communication left due to the meteor itself rolling. That also means that they're jeopardizing being able to remote detonate the blast after seven minutes pass. So they're supposed to be at uh, 200 feet and digging, and Stamper tells Colonel Sharp, who's Fickner's character, that they're only at 57 feet. So, uh, Sharp and Harry get into it in front of NASA. He finds uh, Sharp with a drill time card, and Sharp tells him that him and his men are the biggest embarrassment to NASA. 
Uh, they only have five minutes left to detonate the bomb, so the president orders an evac and for General Kimsey to override this system. Yes, sir. I understand. The orders are to remote detonate in 30 seconds. You have not told them yet! That is my father up there! This is one order you shouldn't follow and you fucking know it! Let her go! Let her go! Okay, sir. But I'll be with them. Slow it down. Harry, the clock on that nine-foot nuclear weapon is ticking. Sharp then retrieves a pistol from a safe and total panic slash chaos ensues with Truman pleading with the president only for Kimsey to be told to remote detonate in 30 seconds with the uninformed men still working. You know, it's just, like I said, it's just building layers. So, you know, you give this whole subplot of having, you know, we're going to remote detonate and it just adds tension for the ground crew because it's something Billy Bob and his people are dealing with as opposed to just having them be down there and, you know, just basically be in the ear of, uh, you know, Bruce Willis and all the characters on the rock, you know, it, it just, again, adds more shit. It adds more layers and just keeps the tension going. Cause then you're like, Oh fuck, is the U S government going to fuck it up? Because you absolutely believe they will. <laughs> right. You know, are, are they going to not have faith in the guys? Cause you're rooting for the drillers. Cause they're like the everyman. you know, they're like the rest of us. You're rooting for them. So, you know, it's just this whole government versus them. Uh, so you're rooting for him. It gives Billy Bob and his crew something else to do. And again, just adds more stuff and just makes the whole scene just more tense. So they get it back up and um, they successfully shut it back down with just under three seconds left because it's got uh, Gruber, I believe that's the name of the uh, gentleman who's down there with them who we don't really get to see as much. Him and um, uh, Fickner's character, they like dissect this thing and you know, they even go as far as to ask if they want to clip the red wire or the blue wire. Like, this is old school. But they do. Just under three seconds left. So, no nukes will be harmed in the making of this movie. So, as Barry remembers, the armadillo jumping across the canyon scene that is basically happening around this time. Um, the, the scene was uh, complicated but inexpensive. Bay felt it would work great with the younger audience and it was short. Yeah. Um, so Rock Hound then finds a controller and just starts firing at everyone inadvertently with this machine gun. This is the most random ass fucking scene of the entire fucking movie. He just, in the middle of everything going on right now, we're gaining up on the, uh, coming up on the third act and everything and Rock Hound who is said to be a genius, just finds this controller and he's, like I said, inadvertently just firing off this machine gun around. Doesn't notice it going off. Really? Yeah. It's just odd. I, 
it's one of the it's things a weird in this scene. movie. It's just weird. Like, I know they say, like, he's losing his mind or whatever, space madness or whatever they call it. It just seems like one of those things they added for something else. And to me, it didn't really work out. I mean, I know, uh, you know, Rockhound, the character, was nervous the whole time about going to space. And I get that. Like, he's not, like, the bravest dude in the bunch. But I don't know. This whole thing, this whole subplot with him kind of losing his mind and getting strapped down. I know they were maybe trying to play for comedy, but it never really worked for me in the movie. It just comes out of left field. So Max hits a hydrogen pocket while he's digging, and he unfortunately dies in an explosion, along with the armadillo going boom, boom. And this fucking scene, the intensity of it, like hearing Max say, I'm cooking, and then Bashemi's subtle goodbye, Max, as he's floating away and dying, like... It's a terrible scene to watch, and then it, it, it makes it even worse is after it's all over. You know, Harry says he's got a hold of, got to get a hold of Truman to deliver the bad news. It was always Bay's intention for Armageddon to be rated PG-13. He had decided on this shortly after The Rock. He wanted to shoot it like an R-rated film with the sophistication and seriousness of an adult movie, but with none of the R-rated trimmings like blood or language. He notes the falseness at work when the Independence crash lands on the asteroid. The way the windows blow out, the pilots and most everything else on the ship would find the blood in their bodies being ripped out and the, the bodies generally being torn apart, which is true. That, that scene is like, no, it's not how this works. They'd be frozen right away. They just—it would involve a lot more red stuff and a lot more body parts. Um, and yeah, he acknowledges how fake the crash is in the finished film, and notes something his grandfather always told him. He says, "In quote, you can make money if you sell stuff to Middle America," and that's exactly what he did. Then we get. The global montage of the world preparing for the worst. Followed by Paris randomly being destroyed. And I have in my notes here, every time there's a scene of destruction like this, where a city's going up, you can tell from Bay's decision to use Dutch angles what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has a distinct angle. And, you know, rewatching this on the Blu-ray, you know, some of the effects, like, I always remember, like, you know, thinking pretty, uh, the movie looked pretty good, and it did at the time. Like, obviously, the the effects were what they were, but watching it on Blu-ray, I'm like, oh yeah, some of this doesn't look so great anymore. I don't think high def did some of these shots, especially like the meteorite shots where they're coming down and destroying shit. Didn't do it any favors. Don't think so. With the CG stuff. Don't think so. Now, I mean, it doesn't look terrible. Like, it's not, like, comedic. Like, Bay use, does it in a smart way because he's a good filmmaker. Like, 
you know, you have like the practical shit on the ground with the cars flipping and explosions and stuff falling down and all that. But, you know, some of the shots, especially like when it's pretty much all CG, like, you know, when it's showing the buildings, it doesn't look great. I mean, then again, I have probably a more trained eye than most people would. You know, right. and especially since I'm watching this movie to dissect it, it looks fine still. But yeah, the high def definitely didn't do it any favors on my big TV. Well, this scene here was added late in production, even after a test screen had taken place. Bruckheimer remembers how much sitting and waiting there was in the in the film after the Shanghai sequence. He always felt the sequence needed to be there, but kept it getting dropped. But kept it getting dropped from the script for budgetary reasons. Joe Roth, again the producer, I'm sorry, the head of Disney at the time, was the final decision maker on this and agreed to do to add it back into the final film after the test screening. The French woman who bought gardening gloves for this spacesuits was just trying to save up money for this sequence. That's not explained, but it makes perfect sense. Bay would have frequent meetings with his visual effects team and would meet with the different artists individually. He even asked James Cameron for advice on how to arrange editing and visual effects. Cameron's advice was to have two meetings a day, one from 12 to 1 and one from 7 to 8. Bay's also notes that... Uh, Bay also notes his biggest concern, his biggest concern with CGI which he feels makes it look the cheapest and most fake, is that the light hits it and the quality of that light. I'm sorry, is how the light hits it and the quality of that light. And final note for this scene here is that Armageddon has roughly 250 effect shots. Before that, the most produced... Before that, the most that the producer had ever oversaw was around 80 for Crimson Tide. So this film was big in a lot, lot, lot more ways. Um, Grace attacks Truman. Then uh, she tells her that uh, he hopes that they can depart the asteroid in time. Yeah, and, and do what? Come home to an Earth that's destroyed and layered with, uh, you know, debris that you can't inhale, otherwise you're gonna die too. <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Um, AJ arrives all of a sudden with the armadillo just as they admit defeat Houston's informed of the news they've got a hole to drill for just an hour to do so 250 feet and uh, yeah um, let's see and this is when we see Rockwell getting space dementia and they wrap him up in, in the they just duct tape the shit out of him to prevent anything else from happening. <laughs> now, get this. That is, uh, in fact, NASA protocol for immobilizing a crazed crew member. Did huh. you know that? I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. What else are you going to do? Blow him out of the airlock? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like you're kind of stuck with him. Yeah. Um, also, Ben Affleck was the only actor who actually drove one of the armadillos. He notes that it had a Chevy 357 engine that was dressed up to look much more impressive. The armadillo was much wider than a car, and Affleck remembers uh, continually scraping the wheels along the sides of the canyon. 
about their movie, AJ hits his mark while investigating, I'm sorry, inspecting the hole before dropping the bomb. A bunch of debris strikes and kills one of the men, Gruber, as well as uh, damage the remote detonator, which means that someone now has to stay behind and do this by hand. Yay. So they go down the old school <laughs> road and they draw straws while Rock Rock County suggests that they stay and die together. And uh, yeah, not on board, but they do it anyway. And wouldn't you know, AJ draws the smallest straw. So <laughs> it's like small straw for your baby teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Harry tells Sharp to get their team out of there and tells Grace that he's gonna. Oh wait, this is all right. I'm sorry, I, I got ahead of myself. So they go down, they go outside, Harry and AJ, and as after uh, the, the panel door opens up, uh, AJ, yeah, Harry rips the oxygen line from AJ's suit, throws him back inside the pod, along with his patch for Truman, and tells him that uh, he'd be proud of him to marry his daughter Gracie. So then Harry tells Sharp to get the team out of there and tells Gracie that he's not going to, you know, he's not, he's got to break a promise and that he's not coming home. He says, I don't care what anyone says, but, you know, it's, this scene's so emotional for me. back into it. it's not high art like no. it's simple stuff but it's done just so effectively you know bruce willis just plays the everyman so well i mean that's what uh broke him into movies with die hard and you just feel it here like these are all blue collar guys so we automatically feel for him and then obviously harry's just trying to save. like he doesn't want to save the world like he says it earlier but of course it's got to be him out of the six billion people and you know, he doesn't want to do it, but he's somebody's got to save the world and he wants his uh, daughter to be happy. So got to send AJ back. So, yeah, it's just you just 
feel for him. It's such a tearjerker, and that's why I said, like, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I had some tears oh, I in the theater. Like, I, I, I remember I, I had just feeling tears yesterday. So terrible. I, I was choking up yesterday watching it. It's a hard scene to watch for me. Um, it doesn't ever get it doesn't ever get easier. But you know, that just it makes this film what it is to me. Yeah, I get to at least experience that emotion. Now, the scene here in particular where Willis is saying goodbye to Liv Tyler of monitors was filmed on his first day of shooting. He was looking at pictures of all of his daughters while he delivered the performance to the camera, and that is how this happened. So the shuttle that the rest of the team are in, or trying to leave in, struggles, but finally gets out of there after Lev once again saves the day, gets to the ship, and uh, gets it to launch. I'm sorry, gets the ship to launch. With less than a minute left, Harry continues to fight the asteroid and eventually retrieves the detonator and presses the button right before the asteroid reaches the line. And I fucking love this final moment. Like, this touch, this everything. Like, Bruckheimer and and Bay, like, they note the risk that they took killing off their main character in a film at this size, especially with the character played by Bruce Willis. But... It was actually Willis himself who went to Bruckheimer and kind of asked to get killed off. So. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to do a sequel. Just get yeah. me out of here. No, I'm just kidding. Dan, we're about to cross the threshold. Come on, Harry, press the button. Colonel, I'm asking you just one more minute. Press the button, Stamper. Harry will do it. I know it. He doesn't know how to fail. We win, Tracy. Press it. actually cared because like you know you brought up he cared about the spacesuits which obviously more recently he would have wore a hefty bag if you paid <laughs> the money for it you know which i'm not gonna you know we're not gonna talk about it we covered that stuff enough but uh you know you can really tell bruce willis cared you know like he really put in the acting and at the ending scene and the emotion and that's just really what pulled through yeah so then we see the whole world celebrating life even though other countries are suffering. <laughs> I know, it's like they're all celebrated, like, oh yeah, fuck Shanghai and Paris oh, and New York. Damn. You know. They're on their own. Uh, Freedom lands. Rockhound's pissed because he still owes a hundred grand. So now I know why he's acted so carelessly and somewhat suicidal this entire trip. Um, yeah. Bay says that once the enemy is destroyed, the movie is over. Uh, explaining why many Armageddon subplots are wrapped up extremely quickly after the survivors land. 
He would later use this technique to its fullest with Transformers Dark of the Moon, a film that I do not remember for the life of me. Um, it's one of the many sequels. AJ and Grace yeah. embrace as Sharp requests permission to shake the hand of the daughter of the bravest man he's ever met. I've always loved this part. Rockhound and his stripper embrace. Chick embraces with his son and ex-wife. AJ forgives. I'm sorry. AJ gives Truman Harry's patch. And we get happy endings across the board. The production on Armageddon shot over a million feet of Kodak film. As Babe notes, when you shoot over a million feet of Kodak film, the film company sends you a gift basket with six bottles of Corbel Champagne. He isn't sure of the significance of six bottles. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. We got our end credits. At AJ and Grace's wedding, set to I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, as we see the <laughs> photos of the follow-on men on the mission as the film cuts to the Super 8 footage on, of the wedding on the left and right sides. My first note here, the loan shark who Rockhound gets a hundred grand from shows up at this wedding with a couple of girls as a fucking guest. Maybe, uh... <laughs> <laughs> maybe Rockhound, like he's watching Rockhound, he's like, you still owe me that shit, I'll get you at the wedding. <laughs> it's like, alright, I'll be there with my girls. Yeah, I don't know, it doesn't make any fucking sense. We'll file that under the same thing of uh, fucking AJ <laughs> started a company in three days. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, ori- uh, originally, Armageddon was going to end on the tarmac, but Bay and Affleck agreed that they needed to show his character and Liv Tyler's character getting married. It was Affleck's idea to shoot on the uh, uh, a lot of the stuff on the Super 8 footage, the, the camera, and include this footage over the credits. These shots were done using Affleck's own Super 8 camera. And Corey, that is going to put a pin on Armageddon. What a movie. Yes, that is true. (laughs) All right, box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out, we put more in. I want receipts. All right, so the film was released on July 1st, 1998 from Touchstone Pictures. It was released across 3,127 screens, opening up in first place, making $36 million. Second weekend, it dropped 34.7% down to second place, grossing $23.5 million. Total gross $553.7 million against a $140 million budget. Lots, lots of money. Lots, lots of 1998 money. And it's just... It's just funny hearing, uh, you know, how different things are because, you know, back then, obviously, openings were very important. But nowadays, like these big movies live and die almost by their opening weekend or opening few weekends. And, you know, back then, like this movie made five hundred million dollars on an opening of thirty six million. Like you just don't hear about that stuff anymore. Not at all. Like the staying power of these movies back then was just insane. Like it would just be running in the theater for like months and nowadays in that same time the movies are getting released on like blu-ray 
and DVD. You know, it's just crazy how things have changed. Like the opening weekend is so important nowadays and the drop off is so big, even with popular movies. It's just funny hearing these numbers uh, from back then. If this movie came out today with the hype that it had 24 years ago, carrying over that same hype just 24 years later, I believe this would have grossed about 85 to 90 million dollars opening weekend. Probably. With, you know, yeah. in, inflection and, and inflation and stuff. So. I mean, yeah, it, it was a big-time success, dude. And why the hell not? It got pushed enough. You know, this movie had so many ingredients in its stew. It had a lot of things going for it. Things that, you know, we're about to get into momentarily and, and shit. So, let me, let's go over to Chris Corner and see what they had to say. <laughs> Alright, so the film's got a Rotten Tomato score of 38% based on 121 reviews with the critical consensus stating, lovely to look at, but about as intelligent as the asteroid that serves as the main antagonist. Armageddon slickly sums up the cinematic legacies of producer Jerry Bruckheimer and director Michael Bay. It's got a meta score of 42 out of 100 based on 23 reviews and a cinema score of A-. minus. It keeps all these movies that are getting like ho-hum to mediocre like overall meta scores and Rotten Tomatoes scores. They're killing it in the cinema score. I don't get it. Um, Ebs. Oh, God. We, it, uh, the, the less said, the better. This movie actually made Roger Ebert's most hated films list of 1998. I'm sorry, overall, just period. He hates this movie. Um, the movie that's surprising is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. 98. Yeah, most I, hated film 98. You, usually, I agree uh, with what a lot of uh, Ebert said. Like, yeah, we all do. I, I really think he got cinema. Most of the time, I really think the man understood. But uh, yeah, this one uh, missed him. You know, I didn't expect him to give it four out of four stars or anything like <laughs> that. Uh, but yeah, I'm surprised that he couldn't find the good in this movie, even though it is, you know, obviously silly and dumb. But I'm surprised he couldn't find anything to like in it. Well, you know what? Siskel gave it a thumbs up. So that's good. All right. Todd McCarthy from Variety also gave the film a negative review. Noting that Michael Bay's rapid cutting style, uh, much of the confusion as well as the lack of dramatic rhythm or character development results directly from Bay's cutting style, which resembles a machine gun stuck in the firing position for twenty-one um, for two and a half hours. Um, <laughs> you think that's a lot of cutting? <laughs> Welcome to modern day. Like just watch some of the stuff made today. Uh, and and Hornaday. From the Baltimore Sun gave the film 1.5 out of 4. By the time Bay and Bruckheimer appropriate John F. Kennedy's image in their in their final small town America montage, it's clear their p- 
pomposity knows no limits. Uh, let's see. Jay Boyer from the Orlando Sentinel gave it 3 out of 5. Said that just when you think you've had it with this movie, here comes a farcical rock and roll sort of comedy sequence or a hilariously goofy line. Peter Rayner from New York Times said Bay's movies are trailers for themselves. Every scene is all climax and no foreplay. When it's all over, you can't remember if you've been watching a movie or just a jumbo-sized coming attraction. Uh, let's do one more note. Bay remembers how much Armageddon was knocked by the critics, who, as Bay notes, have an average age of 45. The director watched the film with a critic of the LA Times in attendance. The critic didn't know Bay was there, but Bay watched him during the screening. He literally looked like he had the scowl on his face. And I'm telling you, the audience 12 times cheered. I don't think he liked that. Bay also notes that he doesn't believe audiences listen to what critics have to say in this day and age. Uh, Yes and no. Maybe at the time that this was quoted, but since then... These little things called podcasts have been uh have become a thing, and trust me, people listen. Yeah, I, th- I think especially nowadays, I can't tell you how many times I've rolled my eyes when someone's like, "Well, it's rotten on Rotten Tomatoes," and you know, we're essentially critics on a podcast, and I like plenty of critics, and I I think valuing someone's opinion is a good thing, yeah. but I think basing your entire opinion on whether to see a movie or what you think about something just because of what someone else said is not a good method. You know, if you, if a movie looks interesting, go see it regardless of the tomato score or the critic score or anything like that. Cause you never know what might hit you that didn't hit some of the critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I mean, especially this film is a good example. I think a lot of critics were hating on it cause yes, it is silly and dumb, but I think a lot of other areas of the movie make up for that and make it enjoyable and you know sometimes you got to keep in mind critics see a lot of movies so when they're seeing a lot a lot of movies and a lot of a lot of the same thing they might not have the same appreciation that someone that maybe goes and sees five movies a year would appreciate so that's always something to think of so i really don't like the whole method of well so and so said it was bad so i'm not going to see it or i'll just wait until i can watch it for free or something like that just form your own opinions and you know if you're kind of on the edge and value certain people's opinions that's fine but don't don't just blindly follow that stuff i just do not like that type of thing even as a critic or you know someone who listens to a lot of critics it's just don't blindly base it off of that it's three words i say all the time film is subjective that being said let's move on to music from the motion picture soundtrack music from the motion picture so the obvious conversation starter for this category would be Aerosmith and their big ballad, and we'll get to that in a second, but I'm starting this off with Trevor Rabin's score for this movie. It elevates the film to another level. I think it's the most important ingredient that makes it the movie I see it as today. Besides Hans Zimmer's score for True Romance, off the top of my head, I can't think of another score that was so big it elevated the movie it was written for to another level this score literally affects me not literally but it seriously affects me anytime i hear it's gorgeous beautiful stunning it's all that and i just 
I think that the movie is um, a lot better for having the score that it does. I think it really backs the movie itself up. I think it makes the emotional moments more impactful. I think it helps, you know, just a lot of the upbeating, uplifting scenes. It helps anything that the score has to you know, um, I don't want to say to be dependent on, but any time that the score comes in, it elevates anything that it 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 you know shows up in. The score is, for this movie is just it's it's an all timer for me. It's probably one of my top five favorite all time scores, honestly. And that's not an exaggeration whatsoever. I think the score is yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've always liked it. I, I, I had no idea that you regarded it uh, this highly, though. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, I, I think it's good for the movie, but, you know, if you asked me to pick out, you know, like, movies with scores that I love, this wouldn't be on it, but, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think it adds to the movie. It's just another one of those ingredients that just makes this movie part of the phenomenon that it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, yeah, then there's Aerosmith. And there, <laughs> so uh, it's funny because you know you think Aerosmith, a band that's been around for like the last fifty years or so, um, so many hits. I mean, Christ. I mean, Walk This Way, you know, Sweet Emotion, you know, Dream On, so many songs, you know, Love in an Elevator, you know, so many. I can't stop spitting them out. But did you know that this song for this movie, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, was their first number one Billboard song? Yeah, I remember hearing that. And I mean, you know, obviously Aerosmith was huge, but this was like their, you know, big rejuvenation into the mainstream. I mean, obviously they were still popular. Mm, uh, what- the earlier, no, the 90s were overall. I wouldn't... The, yes, I would say that this helped that that popularity boost that they were getting. But I would argue Get a Grip's release in 93 took uh, this band and just also with MTV, you know, in, in, in its fullest, one of its fullest forms in the 90s, especially with music videos. You know, Get a Grip had so many singles. That was that was the record that had Amazing, Crying. Like every video had his daughter or uh, Alicia Silverstone in it. Um, Living on the Edge. I mean, Get a Grip's a good album. And then and then yeah, Nine I, Lives followed that up. And then a year after Nine Lives came out, this song was released. And yeah, it was their first and only number one single. And uh in the u.s but what i'm no and i mean they were popular like kind of you know they were popular in our circle but i'm just saying this like my parents listen to this song like everybody listened to this song like it, it just it transcended uh genre almost just because of how big this movie was and the song was everywhere because mm-hmm. i've never i'll i'll be the first to admit i've never been a big fan of aerosmith i've never owned any of their albums mm. i mean i like like walk this way. Like I've liked a few other. You're songs. a casual fan. Yeah, but I I don't 
dislike them. I've just never owned any of their albums, just never really listened to them. And I remember I liked this song when I first heard it, but the problem was I heard it too much, and then I ended up kind of turning on it and hating it just because, you know, this video is everywhere, the song is everywhere because of the movie. And I remember liking the movie, but, yeah, the the song wore me out. Now, looking back on it now, I the song fits in the movie. I like it. It's fine. But back then, I just remember wanting to tear my hair out just constantly hearing this song. Yeah, because I've just never been... Uh, you know, a big Aerosmith fan. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the opposite. I love Aerosmith, and I was there in the early '90s. You know, when I was like nine or ten years old, when Get a Grip came out, I bought it on VHS. VHS. I bought it on video cassette. <laughs> when it was like, give me that VHS copy, and the fucking Sam Goody guys like, get the fuck out. I, of I bought it on cassette tape. And, um, and yeah, and then Nine Lives came out afterward, and I got that record, and this was a, I'm, I like this song. I, I, uh, you know, of course, back in 98, when it was playing on every fucking radio station, it definitely overstated its welcome, but 24 years later, I can honestly just sit back and be like, that's a damn good song. And the fact that it's part of this record, this soundtrack. I mean, this soundtrack itself, you know, Armageddon, the album. Not many soundtracks were called, like, the album, you know. Batman Forever was a soundtrack. You didn't. It wasn't called Batman Forever, the album. <laughs> Stuff like that. You know, this song, I mean, this soundtrack had... A lot of Aerosmith. Yeah, I don't want to miss a thing, of course. You had What Kind of Love Are You On, which was the other song that was... Uh, people want to say it was written for this movie, but it wasn't. It was a B-side off of Nine Lives, um, the record that came up before this. You had Aerosmith's Sweet Emotion, Come Together. Uh, there's a fucking Our Lady Peace song on the soundtrack. Uh Steven Tyler, the the whole Animal Crackers thing. It's a good, you know, soundtrack from looking at the track listing. I never owned this soundtrack. I I used to have a lot of soundtracks back in my day. Hell, I even had the Ace Ventura When Nature Calls soundtrack. Never had never had the Armageddon soundtrack. Yeah, me neither. yeah, I, I didn't own as many soundtracks as you. You were definitely always more into that. But uh, yeah, this wasn't one of them, but it was good. I mean, I would categorize this as a really good movie soundtrack as far as that goes. But I just never owned a ton. I only owned a few to begin right. with. All right, let's move on to pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Alright, pros. Kept it easy. I got three for each. I'll go through my pros first. John Schwartzman cinematography is gorgeous. Uh, manages to keep you engaged for its colossal runtime. And Bruce Willis is actually acting his ass off and I can appreciate that so how about you Cor what are your pros 
Uh, my first pro I have to bring up is this movie is just beautiful. Uh, you know, like I said in the Bad Boys uh, episode previously, uh, Bay is a master, at least visually. Right. Uh, you know, this movie looks beautiful, just the colors, uh, just the angles. Uh, I mean, you brought it up, like when the meteors are coming down, the Dutch angles. Oh, yeah. Um, when they're doing the NASA scenes, like just normally mundane stuff, and the camera's spinning and zooming and just moving. Like, just Bay is like a master of movement. Like, uh, that's always like one of the things he does best is just the kinetic energy and movement of the camera in the movie. And, you know, this movie is two and a half hours long, but it does not feel that way. It doesn't. Way. No, um, it does not one and, bit. I wanted to bring that up earlier, but I forgot to. You were exactly right on the nose with that. Yeah. It just, and I think a lot of that has to do with, obviously, the pacing, but uh, just the way Bay shoots things. Because all Bay's movies are long. All Bay's movies are two plus hours, except for, you know, like we said, Bad Boys. He finds a way to pull you into the movie, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I just wanted to shout that out. I think uh, had this movie been made by a lesser filmmaker, uh, you know, obviously you take all that stuff out and this movie just maybe becomes average or, you know, even somewhat boring. Uh, My next pro is the cast. Uh, The cast overall, there's just so many great character actors in this movie. Uh, like we talked about Peter Stromare, uh, he, you know, he is one of my favorite character actors back in the day. Will Patton just is like the likable down on his luck gambler country guy, uh, Steve Buscemi, which, you know, fucking legendary as far as character actors go. And he's, his character is kind of cringy in the movie. I don't blame Buscemi for that. That's just down to the writing and what they did with the character. Uh, but he still has some funny lines in there. And he's still entertaining. Um, Michael Clark Duncan, God rest his soul. Uh, he fits that role perfectly. Like the, and I love like the big, huge dude, but he's also sensitive. Um, you know, and that voice, like, uh, you know, it's such a shame uh, about his passing. Mm-hmm. And then I have to, uh, the last guy I want to mention is William Fickner. Uh, you know, he plays the tight ass, like not my favorite of his roles, but definitely the one he's most known for. You know, if you show a picture to somebody, I, I would venture to say most people would say, oh yeah, the, he was an Armageddon, the pilot. So obviously like a big breakout role. Um, so the cast. And then also, um, you know, this might sound odd, but just this movie, it was still kind of a new thing. So like, I just wanted to bring up the pro of just like the big fun blockbuster uh you know obviously you had like independence day and you had volcano like you had stuff before this but i think this movie just takes the cgi and takes the big spectacle and just embodies it so well from the 90s so i just wanted to bring that i think the this movie gets the mix just perfectly um between the special effects and the acting character so uh just as far as like a big blockbuster from the late 90s that was my last pro is just a big dumb uh fun movie and i think it embodies it perfectly let's see here all right so my cons here the plot what else needs to be said uh some of the members get little to no screen time some characters aren't given much to do we don't even know some of their names uh, and too much camera shaking going on at times for my taste. Not a whole lot, but there are some. This is too much of it. 
Um, and that's it. And I actually kind of reached for a couple of those. So how about your cons? I'm curious to hear. Um, so my big one was some of the writing, you know, when I just brought up the pro of like the concept, like conceptually, I love this movie, but, the down and dirty gritty, um, the, or not down and dirty, but the nitty gritty part of the writing is just not great. Like there's a lot of bad lines in this movie. There's a lot of stuff that I think could have been refined. Uh, you know, also like the rock hound character, I think, you would never see that in a big blockbuster nowadays. And I think that's a good thing. You know, a lot of times people might say everything's sanitized. I don't need the pedophilia guy. I know it's funny. Like she said she was 18. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, as an, as an older guy who has a, I mean, I have a son, but still I can put myself in that situation. I don't, I don't like those kind of jokes, you know, you know, mistakes. Ha- I don't, that whole thing doesn't need to be in the movie. Like just writing like that. Right uh bothers me and it's in a lot of bay films and unfortunately that's one of like the negative sides of watching these movies is just some of the jokes i got you with that um my other con is like you said just a few too many characters you know like owen wilson's character uh yeah i mean there's several more but like he's one that stands out i guess just because he's a big actor and he's kind of a nothing burger to me in this movie like just maybe trim down a few of the characters. You have all these great character actors and some of the characters are great, uh, but some of them not so much. Just, uh, you know, it, it was brought up in the critics corner, just the lack of uh, characterization for a lot of people. So maybe just trim it down. Maybe just streamline that a little bit. You know, just maybe a few guys get demoted to extras pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much it for me. I really wouldn't change a whole lot more. I mean, the movie's long and it does have a lot of montages, but I mean, it works. So I'm not going to knock right, it for that. Exactly. I mean, there's some of the special effects don't look so great, but that's how it is with basically all movies made from around this time. I think Bay did a really good job blending everything. Like I said, my pros. So that's really it for me. I really can't think of anything else that would stand out. All right. Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? I would say you go first, but you're going anyway because I did not put anything down. Intentionally, I did not put anything down for Mulligan Moment because I don't... Honestly, there's nothing I would change about this movie. I mean, yeah, it's a two and a half hour movie, but doesn't feel that length I'm engaged with the movie um I'm invested in it for the duration of the film I don't recall ever once looking at my watch to see how much time was left when I watched it again yesterday for my first time in a few years two or three give or take but um I don't honestly have anything that would change so no N.A non-applicable so uh how about you i'm sure you've got one or two things you'd like to change i mean the biggest thing to me that stands out that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense is the whole uh we brought it up before the rock hound character just kind of losing his mind i think that was just an unnecessary thing to have in the movie like, I know they were probably trying to play it up for, like, comedic thing. Like, oh, crazy Steve Buscemi, now he's taped to a chair and acting loopy. Uh, you know, I know they're trying to add levity 
to that stuff, but I really don't think it needed it. I really wish they would have just done something else with the character or just have him kind of disappear. Maybe, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, just rewatching it. Um, I, I never really liked that whole part, but watching it again, yeah, I could have did without that, honestly. All right. Um, finger looking good. <laughs> finger licking good. All right, so I enjoyed all the montages. All 20 of them. No. <laughs> Uh, no, my actual answer, the final 20 minutes of this movie are fucking just boss. Um, and just, yeah, I just really nothing else, you know, that I could really add to that. Except for, like, the last 20 minutes of this movie are boss. And are my favorite part. So, I love the one last moment between AJ and Harry. I love, you know, the Harry, all the humor carries over. Um, still a lot going on, and it goes until the final two minutes, and it just ends. But yeah, that's uh, uh yeah, that that's honestly my favorite. My my, my final answer is the uh, final twenty minutes, final act, third and final act of this movie is my favorite part. How about you? Well, uh, you know, honestly, that would be mine too. Just the ending gut punch uh, with Bruce Willis uh, dying, because honestly, I didn't see it coming. Like when I was watching this, you got to keep in mind it's like the late '90s. I was a tween, and it wasn't as, it wasn't super common for like the main character to die in a movie like this. So I, I I just really didn't see it coming. It was just a gut punch, and obviously at the time, like I said, I was really into the Ben Affleck Liv Tyler um, relationship on screen. Right. So, you know, I was tearing up. So that was always my favorite part that kind of kept me coming back from the movie. But I'll throw something else out there since uh, yours was the same thing. Um, I always loved the armadillo sequences uh, with, uh, you know, Affleck and Strober and Michael Clark Duncan. Like, it just seemed like a fun group of guys. Like, I would want to be stuck there with, the with them. The thrusters. Like, it just seemed like they were Storm having Air fun. Storm beating on the thrusters trying to get them to work. Yeah, I'm just always like I really appreciate Strober <laughs> on this. Stuff. Like I know, I know it kind of got ran into the ground because then he was cast as like the Russian guy pretty much from here on out. Uh, you know, after this movie, but this is where it started, and I think this is where he really shined. And I just really enjoyed his character. I just really enjoyed the camaraderie uh, between the guys and that, like stuck in the situation and like, we're going to make it through this shit. So I'll throw that in there too. That was always a close second for me is like when they do the big jump and make it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I always appreciated that. Like, I remember just like really uh, cheering for him. Well then I guess uh, we can move on to our, Movie MVPs. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is. Uh, for me, it's Bruce. I think, like I've said numerous times, I'll say it one more time. I truly feel that this was the best strong performance that Bruce Willis gave us before. Things took a dive over the last 20 years, but I think that uh, he brings it for this movie in a big, big way. So, Corey, how about you? Yeah, so uh, I'll throw out a couple just that were in my head. So, uh, P. 
Peter Stromer just because I loved him in this movie. He was a thought. But, you know, he comes in so late in the movie. He's such a side character and comedic relief. Um, one undermentioned character I'll say is uh, Liv Tyler. And it could just be because I had such a huge crush on her uh, back when this <laughs> movie was out. And I was, like, obsessed with her. But she just comes off as, like, so wholesome. She is. And likable yeah. in this movie. Like, she really does anchor that, like, she's just trying to help her dad. And she's stuck in this company. And then she meets a guy. And now her dad's giving her shit. Like, I always just related to that. She was very um, understandable and just wholesome right. in the role. So I think, uh, you know, that's a big part of it. Because, like, if she was not that, then... Honestly, I wouldn't care as much because I'd be like, I don't care if AJ gets back to her. She's kind of bitchy or something, you know, so that that's important. I think that's a little underrated for her, but it has to be Bruce Willis. I mean, let's be real, like without him, like really selling that character. I don't think this movie works nearly as well and it doesn't work on that emotional level. And it just goes back to he's just really good at playing that every man, just that likable, every guy, like he's just drilling for oil, doing what he likes, doing his job. And now he's got to save the world and do his fucking job on an asteroid. So it just, you know, understandable. I will say one thing that I don't think needed to be in the movie was like the whole thing where he's like emotionally 10 years old or whatever. I don't know why that was even in there. Like just, make him immature a little <laughs> right. bit like uh, why does that even have to be thrown in there the like he's um, mm-hmm. like emotionally stunted or whatever it di- it didn't need that but anyway the emotional gut punch like willis is what sells it at the end uh when he sends aj back he's the reason uh the main reason i got so invested in it so it has to be uh bruce uh is the mvp all right mm-hmm. all right final ratings I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. Alright, for me it's four and a half out of five. Uh, everything, I think that the one half peg that gets knocked down is because of the plot uh, for, for what it is. Um, and yeah, maybe some of the writing, but um, it's just doesn't, it just caught, it just it just misses the, the mark of perfection, so um, I, I love it regardless. I'd recommend this to anyone. Um, seriously, if, you, if someone has been under a rock for all these years and has never seen this film, I would recommend it in a heartbeat. But that being said, um, it's one of the finer uh, Bruce Willis movies overall. Young Affleck is a plus, And... Uh, big fan of this movie I, I i really genuinely love it so uh cory how about you uh yeah so uh for me it's a four out of five stars um you know just as far as like culturally this movie was huge i mean this is there's very few movies i would call like a phenomenon this movie i would say was it uh at the time I think you see so many other movies uh, around this time trying to ape this movie and failing at it. Like one, <laughs> one on my list was the core, right? <laughs> which I enjoy that movie in its own right, but it's totally just trying to rip off Armageddon. It's not nearly uh, the movie that this is, uh, but just, it's just such an important movie for the time. Just the way blockbusters were made back then. Like I said earlier, they're just not made like this anymore. Uh, so if anybody was interested in that period of time of filmmaking, I think this is one of the best examples 
of a tentpole big Hollywood blockbuster at the time. Um, you know, it's just endlessly entertaining. Uh, yes, it's long and it can, maybe someone might say it's overall, but I don't think so. I think it, you know, it feels quick. It never loses my attention. Um, you know, the reason I did have to knock it down is uh, for some of my cons of the writing, uh, some of the characters are just kind of useless. You know, maybe mm-hmm. there is a few many too many montages. I mean, when I'm watching it, I'm not really thinking about it. Uh, but here I just list all the montages off as going back. Yeah, maybe there's a, a few too many. You know, this movie's not Shakespeare, but for what it does, it does it very well. It's visually pleasing. Anybody can enjoy it. It appeals to a wide audience. And it's just fun. And uh, it just feels that need. My my wife, uh, you from her movie taste, you wouldn't think it. She's a huge fan of, uh, you know, what will later be coined as disaster porn. Uh, and this movie is one of the forerunner or, you know, like one of the early movies that you could kind of categorize in disaster porn. And it's one of the best and kind of influenced the rest. And it's just widely accessible. My wife is the type that just puts on a movie here and there, just wants to be entertained. And that's a genre that always, uh, you know, bonded us because I've always enjoyed them. And, you know, it's just something I wouldn't expect out of her. So it just, this movie appeals to a wide audience and I think it's, a huge film. I think the fact that it was in Criterion speaks a lot. All right. Um, this episode is sponsored by NASA. They'll send in a driller when you need an asteroid killer. And that will bring things home for this edition of the show. One now many more to follow. You can check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at thefilmeffectpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please follow along on social media as far as future updates and up-to-the-minute news and updates go. Facebook and Instagram at the Film Effect Podcast. We're on Twitter at Film Effect Pod. TikTok at Film Effect Podcast. And finally, send those emails over to thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know what you think of the show on either Apple, Spotify, or directly from our website. The more the merrier. Any rating or review really helps us out. Something else that really helps us out is buying some merch to help support the show with several new designs to choose from and more to come over the next month or two. Don't have that. Don't hold out on some of the most snug apparel I've ever worn. And that is a film effect guarantee. Next week, we'll be continuing Bayhem when Justin joins me for an episode on Michael Bay's pain and gain. One that Justin admits he's never seen before and intentionally has waited all this time to, uh, watch prior to the episode so we can finally cross it off either way I'm, what's up core i'm interested i'm interested to hear his thoughts Me too. uh you know the fact that he hasn't seen it and also i'm just excited because justin hasn't done an episode on the main show in a while so yeah i'm looking forward to it well either way it's been a few years since i've personally seen it and i enjoyed the hell out of it nine years ago or so when it first came out Corey, i know you're not gonna be on the episode unless something changes unless something changes in the next week or so but uh where are you on pain and gain i remember enjoying it uh and again it goes into the way i enjoy most bay movies like you can tell he was going for something more meaningful Mm -hmm. but not entirely nailing it or understanding it right but in it's just being entertaining in the most bay way (laughs) 
And obviously it helps that you have like the rock, like literally saying, and then God told me to knock you the fuck out. <laughs> like, so, you know, shit like that kind of helps. And Anthony Mack, like everybody's talented in the movie. And I remember enjoying it, but I just remember, uh, you know, Michael Bay trying to make a different movie and, uh, maybe not fully hitting the mark, but it was still entertaining in a different right uh, from what I And if I'm not so, mistaken, yeah. I think former, uh, uh, guest of the show, Larry Hankins shows up in that movie as a priest or something. If uh, my memory corrects or my memory's correct, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I I mean, if he's the one that like talks to the Rock, maybe he I'm is, not. He is, I, he I'm is. not a hundred percent on that because it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, but yeah, just it's just like the craziness and over the topness is the joke in the movie, and uh, yeah, I remember really enjoying so i'm looking forward to it. it'll be interesting uh hearing justin's take on well, it well sadly this is it the inevitable end of the show Corey. as always it's been a real blast and fun time talking about another movie with you anything else before we roll out um i just wanted to say i forgot to do this at the beginning of the show i wanted to give a shout out to uh somebody uh a friend of ours uh, i haven't talked to him in a while but uh brian tolbert um and whenever I think of this movie nowadays, I think of him. And it's just because Brian Tolbert, which uh, obviously used to be my boss at Blockbuster, um, was a friend of ours. We used to play a weekly card game together. Um, got the queen. Un- yeah, you got the queen. Uh, you know, I obviously I haven't seen him in a while. His health. Uh, hasn't been the greatest, which, you know, I won't talk about that on the show. But I just always remember Armageddon with him because he always had it on the DVR, always had it yes. on whenever it was on TNT. Because, you know, this movie was always oh, on yeah. cable in the early to mid 2000s, yep. constantly on cable. And I just remember, like, it literally became a joke. Like, he would text me, guess what I'm watching right <laughs> now? And right. I would text back Armageddon. He's like, hell yeah, they just landed on the meteor. Like, it was just like a joke at that point because he, like, literally, I can't count how many times I walked into his apartment and this movie was playing and it just became a joke. So I couldn't think about this movie and not think about him like, yeah, boy, Armageddon's on. So I just wanted to throw it out there. I meant to bring it up at the beginning of the show. But, yeah, shout out to Brian Tolbert. I, I, I hope he's doing um okay. And, you know, obviously his circumstances can't be helped but uh you know just shout out to you uh tolbs i just had to bring it up all right then as the saying at the end of every episode goes it's been fun but now it's done take care now bye bye i'll see you guys in a couple weeks i gotta get my baby teeth fixed before i don't <sighs> <be> back <laughs> bye This concludes our broadcast day.